edition of Rank and Review. Episode 165 will be our second episode dedicated to the Cohen brothers. I have Paxton Francis and Matthew Risling with me here again, and it's going to be a bit of a sit, but the Cohen brothers, they're dense. They give a lot of good film and a lot of deep cinema and a lot of stuff to sort through and think about. They are my very favorite filmmakers, and uh, I hope to make a case for that today. If you have feedback to give me, as I suspect a lot of Cohen heads might, you can do that by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also check out my website at rankinreview.ca. I, as always, am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and you should go into this Coen Brothers podcast very aware that we are going to be dealing with spoilers for the six films we review, as well as likely frequent course language. Thank you, as always, for listening to Rankin Review. I hope you continue to do so, and if you could go ahead and mention it to that other film freak in your life, you'd be doing me a solid. Now let's get this Coen Brothers podcast on the go. This is going to be, I believe, the 165th episode of Rank and Review. The last time Matthew Risling and Paxton Francis were here with me to talk about the Coen brothers, it was the 100th episode. So we're back. We're going to talk Someone about. Someone out there can do the math and tell us how many episodes. <laughs> yeah, that some was. genius. <laughs> we're going to talk about six more Coen brothers movies and. Um, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> we didn't necessarily agree at all, particularly <laughs> for the first episode. <laughs> so it's, I don't know how productive it was for people. I hope it was an interesting conversation, but uh, there was no uniformity of position. There was. There was a uniformity of opinion that the Coen brothers give good movie, and yes. we love all six of those movies. <laughs> and don't make us choose. But this list is particularly... Uh, triggering for me because it contains both The Big Lebowski and No Country for Old Men, which for me, the movies are so different and yet so amazing to me that it's, they're too different to choose from somehow. Like, it, it, it's really, that was the toughest part of the list was those two movies for me. I think you're tipping your hand a little bit, so we're not, not going to see Lady Killers at your number one? <laughs> no, no, it's not going to make the top spot. 
You, what? We watched. I watched the wrong movies, guys. <laughs> no, I I didn't. My list is is here. It's stapled shut, and I'm pretty sure that I've watched the correct six films <laughs> in English I, too. I don't think you need to hold your list up to the microphone. <laughs> I think they can see that in podcast land. I did it for you, man. <laughs> So is there anything you guys wanted to say by way of introduction before we talk about these six movies? Is there an approach you guys want to take? Did you find any themes bumping into? Well, are, are we going chronologically, or right? Yeah, I, I would like to, just the same way we did with the, the last bunch, yeah. Uh, well, it, it, the Coen's playing with their typical themes. Uh, the first movie we're going to talk about, The Big Lebowski, is a return to their delicious blend of crime and comedy which we haven't seen since raising arizona at this point in yep. their in their filmmaking history um, it's actually i was noticing a lot on this list about the the question of what it means to be a man in the modern world absolutely i was gonna say that in the in the big lebowski it comes up it definitely comes up in the man who wasn't there repeatedly mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What sort of man are you? What makes a man? Well, and that's a theme that has cropped up often, uh, especially like, and maybe most prominently in Miller's Crossing, uh, the uh, the Tom character constantly chasing his hat. Being, we talked about that in a previous episode. Whatever number that was, someone can do the math on that too. One hundred. One hundred. Oh, sorry, I interrupted. Oh. There's a bit of a Skype lag, by the way, anybody listening. So uh, if I interrupt, it's it's not because I, it's not simply because I'm super rude. Uh, mm. No, yeah. Matt's in, 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 you know, the other side of the world in, in Shanghai under quarantine. So we're going to give him a little bit of, <laughs> of room here. Yeah, we've got about a third of a second, I think, of latency on the connection. So we just have to all be patient with one another <laughs> and be kind with our words. Take nice... Yeah. Slow breaths. I find Put our index finger on our nose and, and hold up our other finger. I find them asking a lot, what makes a man, why do you do these things, but more asking questions and answering them. The Barton Fink sort of approach. <laughs> um, and I don't know that they have the answers or if they're just fascinated with that question, but it's interesting how that came up again and again, and it's interesting how I didn't notice it, or if it maybe it was just it was pocketed specifically in this group of six. Yeah, and there's another thing that I noticed that I hadn't noticed before, but you know how Quentin Tarantino has foot fetish? Like, his, his movies are basically at, at least one foot porn scene per movie? Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of feet and taking off boots and taking off socks in the Coen Brothers' corpus. If it was if it was like 20% sexier, I would say that they have a Tarantino-esque perversion. They probably have several. They're they're addicted to strange details, I suppose. Like you don't often see people take off their shoes in movies, but they make a big deal of Anton Chigurh taking off his shoes and socks. Yeah, <laughs> but, there's a lot of it in the Big Lebowski as well. Yeah, but I love the weight that a character like Chigurh holds. That him taking off his socks have to mean something. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so shall I set up the six movies we're going to talk about? Is there anything else you guys wanted to say before we got into it? No. Nope. I have the feeling we're going to be here for a little while. Last time we were, we got into it, so. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about The Big Lebowski, which is a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> Spoilers. We're going to talk about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? We're going to talk about The Man Who Wasn't There. We're going to talk about Intolerable Cruelty. 
the Lady Killers and their Best Picture winning No Country for Old Men. Thanks for being here, gentlemen. Wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. You know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, Duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Ah! Employed? He likes sex, Mr. Lebowski. Is this your only ID? You got the wrong guy. I'm the dude. Your name's Lebowski, Lebowski. Jeff Lebowski, the other Lebowski, the millionaire. I received this ransom note this morning. This is a bummer, man. They want you to take the money and act as courier. Why me, man? What the hell is this? My dirty undies, dude. The whites. Let's take that hell! Why should we settle for 20 grand when we can keep the entire million? I know you're mixed up in all this. Playing one side against the other in bed with everybody. Blow them. Huh? Fabulous stuff. What? Who's sitting on a million dollars? We want some money. Ah! Sitting in the trunk of our car. Where is my damn money? Say, dude, where is your car? So... The Big Lebowski is like a birthday present that I give myself every year. Like, I watch it on my birthday, usually if I can, with a bunch of people. But even if that doesn't work out, I try to find I try to find time sometime in September to revisit Lebowski. And it's one of these Coen Brothers films because of how rich it is that it doesn't seem to matter how many times I watch it, I see new shit in it. <laughs> uh, it's an amazingly dense movie there's an awful lot going on in it and yet nothing is really going on in it <laughs> it's not really a mystery it's kind of a buddy comedy I, I, like, <laughs> but really the story boils down to the dude is a tumbleweed yeah it's a series of events and a series of weird characters and full confession the first time i watched the big lebowski I didn't laugh a lot. I liked it, and I couldn't wait for it to come out on on VHS so I could get another another pass on it. But it just got funnier and funnier and funnier to me, and it's never seemed to stop. It's like uncanny. Like I don't. It's one of the rare movies, like Jaws or something, that I just I seem to be able to watch again and again and not get tired of. I don't know what it is about the adventures of this guy, this this layabout in Los Angeles, and how he gets mixed up with a millionaire who shares his name and in in trying to replace his rug which was stolen from him he gets caught up in kidnapping with nihilists and uh, all sorts of confusing and distracting story elements and in the end like there's no mystery to predict and no real obvious climactic moment to the movie so uh, why does it have the cult following why do i love lebowski so much I'm asking you because I, 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 I'm not sure I fully understand it. <laughs> but that's my opening salvo. Anybody else a fan of the Big Lebowski? Be honest, for me, Big Lebowski, I said this last time, um, it's a lot like Raising Arizona in that I, my brain gets it. Like every scene I see, like that's a really well written, well put together scene. Um, but I actually, I, I've seen it three times now, counting last night, and I just, I, I just can't internalize liking it all that much. I, it's, it's an almost perfect movie. I have no criticisms of it. I want it a little bit 
alienating in that way where everybody in the room likes something and, and you don't and you kind of just feel like you don't belong. But everything about it is good. I'm not <laughs> criticizing it. I just don't feel anything. So anyway, I think I think Paxton probably has more interesting comments about it. <laughs> no, I still hate it. <laughs> no, I do not hate this movie. I've I've uh, enjoyed I've cherished the Big Lebowski since uh, 1998 when it came out. We, Larry and I viewed this movie in the theater together. Uh, I believe, was it that very first year? We have to tell this story yeah. for the podcast, it's necessary. I guess. It's necessary. We went to a really lame Halloween party dressed in really awesome costumes like the year after The Big Lebowski came out. Let's be polite. I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a really lame Halloween party. We don't know who might be listening. Uh, it, I thought it I was, was quite a nice Halloween party. <laughs> Nobody knew who we were was the point. We were we we got to the Lebowski thing well before it became a cult thing. I was on board right away, um, I, and I don't necessarily identify with Jeffrey Lebowski, despite that I've grown my hair out or anything like this. In a bathrobe, Larry can be nearly indistinguishable from the dude. <laughs> the dude, <laughs> depending on the the cut of his hair and his beard at that time. Actually. In an attic somewhere in Saskatoon, I think I have a photograph of you guys as uh, Lebowski and the Jesus. Yeah. Yep. Nobody knew who it was. It's tragic. Tragic. But I, I don't know what this guy... Like, he's not a role model. You don't necessarily want to drift through your life and just expect everything to work out for you the way, like, the dude seems to have. And we're never really clear how he's managing to not pay his rent. <laughs> he's got the sweetest landlord in the world, but... I think it's made pretty clear. I mean... We follow the dude for, what, a week? <laughs> week and a half, maybe, over the course of the movie? And he uh, he sires a child, he comes into some money, he gets a rug. He's a leaf on the wind, I guess. <laughs> He's a tumbleweed, right? And yeah. the reason he gets where he wants to go is because where he wants to go is wherever he's headed. He also, for a, quote, stoner character, has remarkable memory. Anytime he hears somebody say a phrase that, that catches his ear in the parlance of our times, or uh, the uh, what's the George Bush quote in the... This, this aggression, aggression will not stand. stand. He, he remembers the little Lebowski urban achievers after Philip Seymour Hoffman mentions it once in the office. But shit, yeah, the achievers. He's Aww, Philip some, Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, sad. Somehow he he's this he's playing the role of the detective, and we talked about this in the last Cohen episode too, where they take basically what should be a gumshoe detective and they replace him. In this case, with a pothead, and in another movie we're going to talk about with a barber, mm. and they just set him on these adventures. And it's much more like he meets this suspicious character and gets punched in the nose, and then he meets this other suspicious character who sends him to a doctor for some reason, and. You just have to go with the flow of the movie, and it asks a lot of you. And I know a lot of people I've known who were put off with initially are put off with the level of language in the movie. It was almost like it was initially trying to compete with Pulp Fiction. What the fuck are you talking about? The, the fucking talking in the fucking bowling alley, dude, was fucking crazy. The the fucking Actually, yeah, the millionaire uh, can pay for the fucking rug. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of um, the gumshoe, one thing that I noticed that I hadn't noticed before is it's kind of like a burlesque retelling of Yojimbo, uh, which I hadn't I hadn't realized. But there is a line with the um, private detective and the VW Beetle who's talking about playing one side against the other. John Polito, yeah. 
if you if you look at it um, in that way, it actually hits a lot of the same beats as Yojimbo or uh, whatever all the other ones that are based off of it. There, there's a really famous pulp detective story that's based off of that, um, and there were got made into a Bruce Willis movie, The Last Man Standing. Oh, that was awful. What I'm talking about? <laughs> I know that movie, but I don't know the source that you're talking about. Anyway, it's a really, it's a famous story that keeps getting retold in movies about some drifter coming into town and there's two houses or families at war and he goes to one and gets beat up really. Oh, Miller's Crossing. Uh, right. Miller's Crossing is based mm -hmm. on that as well. Yeah. Much more structurally. The, the, I think... The other thing that people are off-put by is that there is no gotcha mystery. The whole premise is is that Bunny Lebowski has been kidnapped. And the big reveal is that Bunny Lebowski was never kidnapped. And I think some people feel burned by the lack of mystery in this, quote, mystery story. But this is, I've said it so many times, especially when Paxton's on the show, is a, definitely a movie that's about the journey. <laughs> And if you connect to the dude, and if you like the dude, like, I find the smallest gestures in Jeff Bridges' performance just genius. Ju uh, Julian Moore, who's a very professional actress, confessed that, like, she was amazed that this wasn't a huge hit, and that it was one of the few times in her professional career that she had a real hard time keeping a straight face doing a scene with another actor. Jeff Bridges was just killing her. <laughs> he is yeah. hilarious. It's a, It's a... It's a genius performance, uh, his comedic timing, the physical comedy of his performance, the dance number he does with the, the whole uh, bowling dance with Maud in the Viking bowling outfit, it, him sliding sideways down the stairs in his cable porn outfit. I agree. Jeff Bridges hits it out of the park in every way possible in this movie. And I think Jeff Bridges feels that way about it, too. <laughs> It's actually pretty amazing for an actor that's as unemotive as Jeff Bridges. And, I, I mean, I don't generally like him or dislike him that much. I, I find him a bit flat. But when he's directed by the Coen brothers, his flatness really, really pops this in true grit. Hmm. I find Bridges, like, he doesn't always do good movies, but I almost always find him watchable. <laughs> like, uh... If I can put up with R.I.P.D., I guess there's no there's no line I won't cross for for Jeff Bridges. What about that one? Like in the '90s, he was making action movies, wasn't he? Or he made that one about being a demolitions expert, which was really boring. Tron, he was really oh, boring. Oh, the demolitions expert one, yeah, Blown where away. he's like the former IRA bomber turned anti-terrorist guy, right? With the bouncing Bettys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Uh, we talked about the theme of dreams and dream sequences in the Coen brothers, which they definitely take advantage of, both from his actual dreams and he gets drugged at some points. But I thought it was interesting how implicitly that he was predicting the future in his dreams. Like, when he gets knocked out, he has a dream of Maud flying away with his carpet. And when he wakes up, his carpet's been stolen by Maud. When he has another dream, he's doing a dance routine with Maude, wearing the same outfit as the porn star from the porn clip he saw. And a little bit later on, he ends up having sex with Maude. <laughs> it, the, I guess they've taken a little bit of the mystery out of it, but does, do you feel that added or subtracted to the proceedings? The dream the sequences? The dreams, yeah. I think the dream sequences bring all kinds of richness to the story. And I'm not even sure if I agree with you that they are necessarily prophetic dreams in any way. I mean, presumably, as he's dreaming about uh, Maud flying away with 
his uh, with his rug. That's happening. He's laying on the floor, half conscious, with a bloody nose, and they're pulling his rug away and leaving. And right. So, like, the dream might simply be his brain interpreting what's going on in a dream state. As far as uh, as the dream about Maud, I mean, the dude's a he's a horny, virile fellow, and Maud's an attractive woman. The first time he laid eyes on her, she was stark naked. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it might just, it might not even be any kind of foresight that he would end up having a child with this woman. He simply, it just happened that way, you know? <laughs> He's just, just his uh, fucking lady friend. Well, it's just, it's a thing that's usually in the backseat. They'll sort of sneak in a little bit of dreamy atmosphere or those little mm-hmm. moments in Miller's Crossing. But this one, they definitely dipped into it. Well, and I think much of the dude's life feels like a dream. Yeah, I think there's a bit of mixture between dream and reality for the dude. He seems to spend a fair amount of time semi-conscious. <laughs> but we get that in at least two other movies on the list as well. Like the, the it's it's kind of a regular go-to, right? That you we've got it definitely with the man who wasn't there, and then um, like the prophetic thing, oh brother. I mean, we get the whole plot at the beginning of that. Right. So I think that's just one of the one of the devices that they really like to use. So basically I'm saying I'm with you fellas. <laughs> I think we're all on the same team that we like this movie, although it does sound like uh well, Matt gets it on the intellectual film criticism level, but he doesn't feel it deep down in the cockles of his <laughs> heart. I have a weird experience when I watch it and I forget the scenes almost immediately and then people talk about them and then I can have a vivid memory that's re-triggered, but yeah, I I don't know what it is. It just won't stick with me. Well, the, you're not alone. There's been a few times where I've had the conversation about Lebowski with people, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say, like, Jackie Treehorn treats objects like women, man. And then they smile, <laughs> and they say, yeah, I should watch that movie again. <laughs> it is a frivolous movie in many ways. And so if if you're a person who doesn't like to spend time on frivolity, I can understand not being entertained by the Big Lebowski, but if you want to be entertained in any way, and you're sitting down to watch a movie and you want to be swept away into a story that's going to make you laugh, it's hard to argue against the Big Lebowski as being worth a watch, I think. Oh, well, I definitely think so, but I understand that people are mixed on it. I also think that there's a closet heart in this movie. The relationship between John Goodman... And, and Jeff Bridges kind of sneaks up on you. It's weird because they, the only thing that brings them together is bowling. If not for bowling, these guys probably hate each other, right? But they got on the same bowling team, so they're, they're bros. And uh, it's, it's weird how the dude is trying to be on the surface this mellow fellow, and his best friend is constantly pissing him off and making him yell and scream. <laughs> and... Uh, like, it seems like they don't like each other, but you kind of understand at the end of the movie and with the whole funeral service for Donnie that they, they're like, they're deeply connected. They're bros. <laughs> like, the friendship story arc is almost stronger than the sort of, quote, mystery story arc. But it's, mm-hmm. it, it's not obvious at all. It just kind of hits you all of a sudden that that's been happening. Mm-hmm. Plus, John Goodman. Again, I know I said when uh, we did Barton Fink that that might be his very best performance, but no one else could play this part. Name me another actor who could have brought Walter Silchek to life in the same way that Goodman does, because I can't think of it. 
Well, obviously, it's Farley. You just need a fat guy that yells. <laughs> you think that's all it took? Walter Walter Sobchak was written for John Goodman. Absolutely, I, it was. If I remember correctly. Now, do either of you know how much? Jumping back for a second to the dude's performance, do either of you know how much uh, Bridges <clears throat> knew about the real dude? The, the fellow that inspired the dude as a character. He met the guy, and after meeting the guy, intuited that he would be okay with letting his gut out a little bit for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently the real guy is actually much heavier okay. than what we well, see. Well, was. I actually think he's... He's, he's passed away? Okay. Now. So, one, one thing we haven't mentioned, and that we should, uh, particularly because it relates to some of the earlier movies we've discussed, uh, is the Sam Elliott character. <laughs> okay. The, the narrator? omniscient narrator that they tend to uh, like to dip back to every once in a while mm. what do you think of the stranger <laughs> and his presence in this film because I like a good sarsaparilla <laughs> but if I have to question one thing about this here movie it's why oh why is Sam Elliott here is he the Mike Yanagita of this movie <laughs> I mean this is the I mean another Coen Brothers theme um is the cowboys right there's there's kind of a I don't know how to say it like a kind of a libertarian ethos that runs through Coen brothers and they're really into the lone cowboy wanderer um and also some a god or a god figure will pop up so this seems just to be a confluence of those two we've got this you know just the the archetypical um platonic man that is there to sort of give the thumbs up to Big Lebowski. It's the same role that the the guy in the clockworks of the Hudsucker Proxy who has the narration there and intervenes in the plot, I guess, to some extent. See, I, I would disagree with that because Sam Elliott doesn't, doesn't intervene at all. He's just... He doesn't need to mean, watch the ball. More like the old, old guy at the beginning of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? where he's just kind of the... He's just kind of watching. He's not really part of the mechanism. Yeah. I think you guys are cruising for a fight here already because there's nothing to fight <laughs> about. The point is both characters like are the narrators of right. their respective movies, and they are both, if not omnipotent, superhuman in some way. They know more than we do somehow. Right. They're the voices that the Coens have given to their narrator in that story, and it's definitely a big difference that the, uh, that the, the clock keeper in Hudsucker does intervene at not just in the story he saves but in the, the day. climax of the story. Yeah. It's literally Deus Ex Machina taking place in the movie. Mm. Or Deus in Machina. But I like the idea that throwing if, a wrench into the machine. If we go if we went with the idea that, that he's God and I'm not even committing to that, I like that he's there, but I won't pretend that I fully understand his presence, but I wouldn't cut it at all. Uh, I like the idea that if it was God, that he's really interested to see how this bowling tournament goes out. Like, he wants to watch the semis, and he doesn't really know on some level how it's going to turn out. This is interesting to him. <laughs> well, presumably an omniscient being that's benevolent and curious would kind of care about all of us and would kind of hope that there's a little Lebowski on the way. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just a... The, I, I like to think of The Stranger as being... Uh, I hadn't actually, Matt, thought of him uh, in relation to their sort of libertarian streak that I think, you're right, they do, it, it does pop up in their work, but sort of, if there was a god of modern day, the, the modern day American West, it's kind of this 
Sam Elliott, faux cowboy, traveler, rambling man, uh, God voice, and holy shit, what a voice. Mm. He's the perfect man to play the part. I well, and uh, I don't think he br- movie, takes anything away from the movie. I just think that a movie that's already kind of loud and strange real, and strange and can put uh, the casual viewer off that it, it it's an it's an interesting and maybe questionable choice to have the whole thing framed by this strange inexplicable cowboy god narrator figure. But I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and one more one more level to that in a film that's strange and can put people off, the narrator is also put off by some of the strangeness. Yeah. Well, every every now and then say that you know I didn't like all of it. I didn't <laughs> like that part. Or I didn't fully get it. Yeah. Well, why, why did it get all real when Donnie died? I, I don't have know. to agree. <laughs> I didn't much like it seeing Donnie go. <laughs> it wasn't my favorite thing. Again, but. that's another thing that creeps up on you about the movie because Donnie says almost nothing. They did the opposite with Buscemi in this movie that they did with Fargo. In Fargo, he couldn't shut up, right? And in this movie, he just gets these little interjections is constantly being told to shut the fuck up, Donnie. But when Donnie goes, there's impact for me for some reason. When he fails to roll that strike and that one pin just wobbles but doesn't fall it seems to mean something right it does seem to foretell his his coming heart attack but (laughs) does it right uh well and that's the thing like we were saying strange details in an already strange atmosphere is this adding or subtracting to things i think it's almost always adding even when i don't understand it why is david thewlis there in that one scene snarkily laughing at everything that happens to him it's sandra about the biennale <laughs> like what the fuck was that about i love it don't get me wrong but honestly what the fuck was that about and i have to point out something that we noticed because we've watched this a gajillion times the two thugs that work for Jackie Treehorn that oh, yes. assault Lebowski at the very beginning of the movie and then disappear for about an hour and then we see them again when he meets Jackie Treehorn. Woo. And uh, I don't know the I can't other can't remember the name of the guy. They switch clothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same clothing but the other they dude's wearing outfits. the other guy's outfit. <laughs> like, why? And that has to be deliberate. I don't think that's a fucking accident, right? Like, why are I, they a couple? Did they just pick up what was on the floor next to the bed? Why? I cannot cite a source for this, so take it with a big grain of salt. But I have a memory of reading somewhere in Reddit and movie details or something that the two actors asked if they could switch clothes. Oh yeah, okay. that it was a an idea that they had that might that they thought would be funny, and the Coens liked it. But <laughs> it's but, just one of those it, things. Don't quote that, me on it. Kind of creates at least a, a very minor motif of people like so these are Jackie Treehorn's clothes so we could imagine their set clothes and then we've got the dude wearing the porn outfit in the bowling dream so uh, I don't know maybe there's something to be done there <laughs> I, I don't know are they Jackie's Jackie Treehorn's clothes I like the idea that these two henchmen like room together they share a small apartment because they don't make much money working for Jackie Treehorn and but who other than a crazy person like myself would fucking notice that <laughs> like like after the 10th or 20th time I'd seen the big Lebowski I noticed in the the fucking toe scene when the dude goes to pay for his coffee he mm. drops a joint on the counter and scoops it up really quickly as a little afterthought. It's just this tiny little detail, but, like, 
didn't need to be there, but it, it's kind of awesome that it's there. But why? <laughs> yeah. This is this is nowhere near as clever as those as those observations. But um, speaking of Fargo, the the other guy from Fargo, the Quiet Killer, mm. uh, I noticed for the first time that he finally got his pancakes in Big Lebowski. That's right, mm. Peter Stormare. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think I've solved the riddle. I mean, we're twenty almost 24 minutes into the review. I don't know what it is that I find so magical about The Big Lebowski, but that's the level of appreciation I'm attributing to it. I think it's just an awesome, amazing, completely original, while borrowing left and right movie. And I, I, the fact that I can never tire of watching it, it... it it's a it, it's a mystery that I guess maybe I don't want to solve. Let me take a, a wild stab at the dark and cracking your nut here, Larry. Oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of of a, an example of a Cohen film that is more of a celebration of just pure whimsical storytelling than The Big Lebowski? I think that's what they were going for in Hudsucker, but if so, they got it was a much more successful swing here. Mm. Like, so the Oshucks sort of uh, happiness of Hudsucker is kind of like Hudsucker oppressive. But has a, a very predictable telegraphed arc, whereas in The Big Lebowski, nothing happens. She didn't even kidnap herself. He didn't even have money in the briefcase. Yeah. It's really just a, a comedy of errors that results in a baby, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> There's a little Lebowski out there, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I take comfort in that. I don't take comfort in it, but I do take a lot of entertainment away from the movie. And I do take comfort in getting together with Larry every year and watching The Big Lebowski and playing The Lebowski Game. This is an all-ages podcast, so I won't explain said game, but I'm sure the rules can be found somewhere out there on the internet. Is there anything else you guys want to say about Lebowski? I do want to say, because you uh, hit the point a few times, that part of the deliciousness about the movie is that it doesn't need to be there. Right, like the whole thing is just the Coen brothers taking this very simple gumshoe framework and populating it with ideas that amused them. Right, that my understanding is that the whole script was built around the homework interrogation scene. That's what was written first. Was they uh, basically John Goodman and his buddy? I don't know if they knew it was going to be Bridges yet at that right. point. Interrogating a teenager over his homework. They wrote the scene, and the whole thing fleshed out from yeah, there. They thought this guy who insisted everybody call him the dude was hilarious, so they, 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 there was something there. And the idea, yes, of John Goodman wearing a small suit and just screaming at a kid about his homework somehow birthed <laughs> the big Lebowski. It feels like pure Cohen goulash <laughs> in a way that none of their other movies do, and I'm not even... I'm not meaning to say that that's necessarily a virtue, Yeah. but if you're a fan of the Cobra. Uh, if you really like what they, the soup they serve, then the Big Lebowski is going to be uh, a special kind of deliciousness. Even though it means less in 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 a way. The people who like Larry, it like it a lot. <laughs> it means uh, it might mean less than a lot of the other movies that they make. I also just want to say this is the movie they followed up Fargo with, the one that the movie that finally cracked the Oscars. It's another one of their counterintuitive moves. Like Hudsucker was supposed to be the big box office win that pleased everyone, and it was a bomb. Fargo was the movie that was going to be so dark it wrecked their careers, and it won a bunch of Oscars. So now with that Oscar credibility on their backs, the Big Lebowski. 
Yeah, I think it was a fun reach back to like, hey, remember Raising Arizona? Yeah. Let's do something that uh, joyful and goofy and fun and and I liked that. Let's do that again, except different because they don't. But want also not trying too hard, like a couple of other movies on this list could be accused like, of being guilty of. Right, you cannot accuse this movie of trying too hard while simultaneously it is almost perfectly executed on a technical level. Really. Brilliant. I, I love it. Who elected you leader of this outfit? Well, Pete, I figured it should be the one with the capacity for abstract thought. Boys, you just stick with me. Man, we're in a tight spot. Believe me, I got a plan. And I can get my wife back and we can get out of here. Okay, I'm with you fellas. Ain't you gonna introduce us, Pete? I've seen him first! Pete! <laughs> Them sirens loved him up and turned him into a horny toad. You two are just dumber than a bag of hammers. Well, allow me to introduce myself. Big Dan Tootcorp. <laughs> What line of work you in, George? Come and get me, Captain! <laughs> oh, George, not the livestock. So, uh, most people who have worked with the Coen brothers say that the sets are very calm, relaxed environments to be in, and like they like to use the same people over and over again, both in front of and behind the camera. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou was a bit of a weird exception because as they were filming it, there was some real anxiety because what they were shooting did not look like the vision of the movie that they had in their head. Roger Deakins had to take this digital film of all of this stuff and they resaturated and recolored almost every frame of this movie. The trees and the area that they were in were all lush and green and ripe, and the movie is made to look like Dust Bowl era and dry and, and washed out. So... They were getting the scenes as best as they could, but they knew that a lot was going to be dependent on post-production, and I think that was causing them a little more anxiety than they were used to having on set. Uh, well, too, with all the musical numbers, because you got to add that in post, and like, how's that? How's that going to work with with what they're filming? Yeah. Um, and we talked in the previous episode about whimsy and the, how particularly Hudsucker Proxy uh, used it almost to a point where you could be critical of it, especially taking sort of ideas and stereotypes of a specific era and embracing them seemingly without judgment. We see a lot of that here in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I know that it was troublesome for you in Hudsucker Proxy, so I guess... I wanted to bring that up as to, because I, as I remember, you're a huge fan of this one, just like I am. Uh, what does Hudsucker do wrong that Oh Brother does right? Or is that a right or fair way to frame it? Yeah, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. The stereotypes that we were asked to embrace in Hudsucker were a little bit shrill to your ears, as I recall, right? Right. And we see some of the same and worse in, in Oh Brother. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, my my problem with Hudsucker was that so much of the plot turned on a particular stereotype, uh, the magical Negro stereotype. In this, I I don't see it being there. Well, I mean, I would say the Coen Brothers in general, they they don't 
they don't deal with race all that well. I mean, we've got a South with the Ku Klux Klan where there's two black people in it, plus, you know, the prisoners, but they're not really the characters. But I didn't find it shrill in Oh Brother because, you know, it's the it's the story of these three convicts. So that's that's who the story follows. Um, I posit not, that the story follows what would be three black convicts if it weren't for what you're talking about, Matt, that maybe the Coens didn't feel like they could write three Negro con- uh, convicts in a comedy and feel entitled to do that. We still have the the black blind prophet that sends them on their past. They still encounter the, the blues musician who sells his soul at the crossroads. There is a lot of that sort of ugly southern stereotyping. Even the way they handle Stephen Root's character, the blind man, seems... They're not making fun of them, but it doesn't seem particularly sensitive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. They're really sort of leaning into the oddness and the the sort of... I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. The way it would have been treated at the time without question, but the way typically when a movie made in the modern days would sort of see with the critical lens, they just sort of let it be and in a way seem to embrace it somehow. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the blind guy at the beginning, because it's a retelling of the Odyssey in a lot of ways, I mean, he's just he's just Homer. He's the blind poet that is telling the story. He tells the story, but, you know, when they're on the cart, we've got the whole... Um, the whole plot in the first few minutes. Mm-hmm. So but I guess again, we should talk really about the plot, me. too, because we haven't. I have a bad habit of not doing that. If you haven't seen No Brother, Where Art Thou? George Clooney, John Turturro, and Tim Blake Nelson escape from a prison chain gang and uh, embark upon an epic odyssey in the Dust Bowl South uh, with a lot of sort of tangential like adventures and storylines. And uh, one of the crazy things about this movie is hey, it's one of the most financially successful movies that the Coen brothers ever made, and you wouldn't guess it on the subject, and that the soundtrack made even more money <laughs> than the movie itself, and that it does deal with country and blues music, which I'm okay interested in, but I'm not fascinated by. Politics in like the Depression era of the South, I don't really have a lot of interest in. Like All of the individual components of this movie, eh, not that interesting to me. But I love this movie. I love it. I love it. It's hilarious. And I think even by Coen Brothers standards, it's so distinct. You can't compare it to anything else. There's like, nobody else could have made this movie. Nobody else would have thought to make this movie. Right. It is... It's very loose retelling of the Odyssey, right? Ulysses Everett McGill is our main character. Uh, Ulysses is the Roman name for Odysseus. Uh, It is however barely that it's mostly a prison break story it's a it's it, i it's actually the, would say it's more than more than barely that i mean there there are a lot of deliberate oh, episodes i'm not meaning to disagree with you there are definitely more than that there's the cyclops there's his wife penny is penelope sirens. the sirens are there there's a lot of it but but the story is not a, a map. It doesn't map onto the Odyssey. The story is about somebody. I just wanted to get in here and say, he's interestingly the opposite of the dude. He's incredibly focused. He's incredibly selfish. He manipulates and lies to everyone he knows to get what he wants. At least that's what Ulysses is like when we meet him. Uh, his two, uh, 
what would you call them? Force companions. <laughs> companions <laughs> are, I think, a little bit better-natured individuals, at least when we meet them, and they are mostly suckered into uh, into Ulysses' scheme to escape and get back to his wife and uh, somehow regain uh, his seat as king patriarch of his family. Well, and he lies to them about this treasure because they got to seek this treasure. But they won't get it on account of their obstacles. <laughs> right. And uh, the treasure, of course, is not something that exists. But they still sort of, you know, conquer these uh, obstacles and they still get richly rewarded at the end. And record a hit single. <laughs> now, I'd never done this before this latest viewing of the movie. But I noticed this time that when we see the footage of the chain gang at the beginning before we see them running through the field, literally every inmate we see is black-skinned. Yeah. And so the three who escape aren't. They're, they're played by uh, Wasp and uh, Jew and what's Tim Blake Nelson? I don't even know. doesn't matter. <laughs> think, but the point is, the next time I watch this movie, whenever that will be, I think I'll be watching it with my mind imagining what the movie would feel like if the three characters were black men. Because I think that's maybe what the movie is. is. It just can't do that. Well, yeah, it's... it's Interesting. I, I wonder if that's what they had in mind. Um, I, think, I think you could imagine that, but I also don't think it would have occurred to the Coens to do that. I also don't see them blanching from things that they would be controversial. There is a dance number involving the Ku Klux Klan. Like, they were going to step on people's toes, you know. These southern stereotypes, There's the, people feel like it's a... No, but think about that Ku Klux Klan scene if they were all black. Yeah. Think about the Soggy Bottom Boys disguises if they were all black. Like, it would change the movie a little bit, and I don't, I'm not saying it would make it better, it would make it worse. It's just that I'd never even had the thought right. before this last viewing, and I don't know why. I hadn't, but if there were one other white man in the chain gang besides the three who escaped, then I would toss my theory out the window. So if anyone out there sees one, <laughs> let me know. My theory is that if that was the take, that they would probably approach it directly and implicitly that way. For me, and I could be wrong, obviously, we, we can overthink the Coen brothers' genius and how meticulous their, their plan was, but for me it's just a joyful, whimsical... <laughs> romp of a movie and that's almost enough <laughs> right mm -hmm. I, I mean you can read a lot into it and you can try to see all of the little easter eggs for this odyssey story that's going on but in the end I'm going to go back to some of the stuff like about the big Lebowski it's the intangibles I don't know why it's so fucking funny to me that George Clooney says man we're in a tight spot so many times but it just gets funnier every time he says it. I don't know why. I don't know why his obsession over hairnets makes me laugh every time I watch the movie. But it does. Clooney puts in, I think, a really strong performance. Oh, yes. It's a good comedic performance. Um, we have another comedic, air quotes, uh, performance from George Clooney to talk about in this podcast later. But I really like his performance in this movie a great deal. Oh, yeah. And he has, he's so he greasy. He's a very similar performance in this one is he does an intolerable cruelty and in that he's, you know, he's turned up to 11, but it works in this, I think, a lot better. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I sort of, there's, I think it's because there's an actual redemption angle to this character that isn't really there with the, uh, uh, I mean, 
the the, the whole into- we'll we'll talk about intolerable cruelty later. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get myself. there. For me, I think it works because this is this is a fantastical world that he's in. It's kind of a cartoon world, or a, a, like you know, it's a fairy tale world. So it it doesn't hurt. And like Tim Blake Nelson, uh, who I I when I, the first time I saw it, I thought he was putting in a a, a magnificent uh, caricature performance. And then the more I see him, I'm like, no, that's just kind of how he is. <laughs> that's a Watchmen TV show too, which is a very serious and somber character. Yeah, well, I think he's actually a really good actor, and he's one of these people who was like friends or neighbors with the Coen Brothers. I can't remember how he got connected, but they just they liked his look, and they had to figure out a way to get him in a movie. And here it was. What a gift that would be, just to be an actor. We get a phone call out of the blue <laughs> from the Coen Brothers and said, "We wrote this part with you in mind. Would you mind terribly?" <laughs> <laughs> having a read it, it's partly well, it's also at the the peak of george clooney too so you know you, you're gonna just be acting against the biggest movie star in hollywood <laughs> ulysses does change his ways though right yeah. like he doesn't stay entirely self-centered he doesn't lie to his friends all the way through the end of the to the end of the film so i i agree with you this movie hits it, uh, it takes a more whimsical approach than than the other one that we'll talk about later. And he's trying but, to get it back to his flock of children. I think that gives us a little bit more of like a sympathetic edge to it. It's not he's selfish about the way he's going about things, but his goal is to not have his kids raised by someone else, you know? Not my favorite thing that his redemption is finding God. Um <laughs> but weirdly I liked all of the the church music in this or all the spiritual music. Every time I listen to the soundtrack or whenever I watch the movie, that I mean, almost every song is just completely captivating. Um, but I didn't really like the Christian Yeah, stuff there's a lot of religiosity so. in the movie. I just love how it's handled. There's the great, they're having a conversation about eating gophers. And I remember watching this the first time in the movie and very, very softly in the background, in the very distance of the trees, you can sort of see some movement and faintly, faintly this music is coming up. And right about the time, I'm about to say out loud, what's with the music? The George Clooney character says, what the hell is with the music? (laughs) It was like timed with me asking that question to myself. And whenever that happens while I'm watching a movie, I feel like these filmmakers have me by the balls, (laughs) right? Like, wow. They're playing their instrument as they make their movie, is is what it is. and, And you're swept up into it. I mind the religious stuff less because again I guess I find it a fantasy world and it's sort of weirdly charming how when Delmar gets saved well, he's very... so happy and he can you know he confesses to all of his sins in front of his friends and he's just like now as far as he's concerned he's scot free it actually has to be explained to him that well you're good with the Lord but as far as everyone else is concerned. <laughs> All of the religious redemption stuff is very much of the world these characters inhabit. And even though we're looking down on it and the Coens are looking down on it without having our own uh, religious feelings, it makes perfect sense for them. They are, after all, simpletons. <laughs> all of them are simpletons. Every single one. And it, they're lovely characters, but... Uh, uh, and I'm not even saying stupid, but they're fairly simple minds from a time a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Where well, I mean, it's not that the movie seems to be saying. Or we'll take George Clooney's scene at the end when he gets down on his knees and prays right before there's the sort of Flood. semi-divine intervention. 
it's not like the film is saying that's good enough for him, but you know, we get it guys. Like that, that honestly seems to be the film's, what the film is saying. But I, in this world, religion is, it's just real. That dude with the hound seems to be representing something deep and dark and forever, right? <laughs> like, everything's at stake. Their soul is at stake. Like, I don't think that kid who said he sold his soul at the crossroads was, was kidding around. <laughs> like, that, that actually happened in this world somehow. Eyes and glasses and, and whatnot are really important in this movie. Uh, yeah. We we have glossed over. I, I really didn't mean to say that the movie is barely a retelling of the Odyssey. It's just certainly not setting out to be uh, first and foremost that. But yeah, for sure. Matt, did you have anything more that you wanted to say about that? Um, no, not really. Um, like I, I think from what I understand, they had started making the movie before they realized that it seemed to have a lot in common with the Odyssey. And then I think they kind sort of repurposed of some of the scenes that they would have anyway. Mm. So like the, the the singing thing that you were just talking about, Larry, I think they just kind of tweaked it so it's kind of got a Lotus Eaters feel. So, But obviously they, they needed to have a baptism scene plot-wise. Right. So I think that's, that's kind of its relationship with the Odyssey. But uh, there's some things that are very recognizable. The Sirens, which is just a great sequence, I think, is very recognizable. John Goodman, the Cyclops, very recognizable. Babyface Nelson, I'm not sure where he is. I also, when I remember him shooting the cow, taking the wind out of the theater <laughs> when we saw it the first time. Um, but I don't know where that fits in the sort of Ulysses Quest thing. Uh, Tommy does, the, the guitarist. I can't remember the name of the character, but he also has an analog in the Odyssey. Right. And that's too, this could be ignorance, too. Robert Johnson, the, right? He's Robert a real Johnson, figure. the famous blues musician who said to have sold his soul at the crossroads. Right. And this movie's sort of taking that seriously, I guess. Yeah, I'm just saying that his character also, I can't remember what the character's name is in the Odyssey, but he does map onto someone there as well. Uh, I should look it up, but... I'm not going to. <laughs> there is the Odyssey. I should remember this because I was teaching a mythology class a couple of years ago. But there was killing a king's favorite cow. Like that's something that's in the Odyssey. Mm. Um, John Turturro being transformed. Although in uh, the Odyssey, um, Ulysses' men are or Odysseus's men are turned into pigs. But in this, it's a frog. Um, and then there's the opposite where he gets home and Penelope has been rejecting all of the suitors. But of course, she does the opposite and just kind of. <laughs> presumably, he was the first suitor that came to her, and she's like, "Yeah." Yay! <laughs> I Penelope gets busy. <laughs> I have to just say, maybe as a word of warning, for the people that this doesn't work for, and I do know a few of them. It seems some people seem to have a real toxic reaction to Oh Brother. I I love it, but I know a handful of people who fucking hate it and uh, it's like if, if you don't sort of attune to the climate of the movie and you, you're not going to you'll probably know after the first 20 minutes or so but uh, some people have really reacted badly to it I can't relate to this at all I think the movie is so joyful <laughs> like there's such a strange energy to the movie and it's so unpredictable <laughs> what's going to happen next is I personally haven't run into anybody who's had a really uh, 
adverse reaction to this movie? What what are what have been some of the really negative um, takes you've heard about it? I this is embarrassing to admit, <laughs> but this is true. Used to be subscribed to a magazine called Entertainment Weekly. Oh yes. And Lisa Schwartzbaum and I remember Lisa called Old Brother Where Art Now the worst movie of the year that it came out. And because of that, I did not renew my subscription <laughs> to Entertainment Weekly. That was the last fucking straw. <laughs> no, we can disagree. You can be wrong. I can be wrong. But that's crazy. Blair Witch 2 came out this year. What in the fucking <laughs> world are you talking about? <laughs> like, now, if she wanted to say that she felt that Oh Brother Where Art Thou was the most overrated movie of the year, I wouldn't necessarily balk at that. That movie got so much love. Right. And it's it's debatable whether it got more love than it deserved. It's debatable whether the soundtrack track got more love than it deserved. It's strange to me. I love this movie. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I love this. But it's it's odd to me that out of all of their movies, this is one of the ones that seems to have had the deepest cultural penetration. It's like this and Fargo you are have the predicted two that it. have reached deepest <laughs> into the zeitgeist. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I think there's a large section of people that their 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 um, feeling about movies is kind of based on this Victorian realism, right? Like the idea of that's unrealistic. Um, there are some people that that really irks. Right. Uh, I have certain family members that I watch movies with, and they are just unwilling to accept anything of kind of like magical or heightened realism as anything except for unrealistic and I, I think it's just a turn off here's what turns me off is when a movie is not upfront about whether or not it is a magical thing or not I, if a movie is going to be whimsical I like that to be something that is apparent from the beginning I appreciate that in most cases with storytelling if the story is honest from the beginning about what kind of story it's going to be. So I don't mean that it gives itself away, and I understand everything that's going to happen at the beginning, but I don't want a movie that starts out being a comedy uh, leaving me in tears at the end, preferably. I want some kind of warning to this. Well, unless it's done masterfully, like From Dusk Till Dawn, where <laughs> the movie just becomes a different movie halfway through, but for some reason it works. It's the strange bait-and-switch idea of a movie, I guess. Right, but if From Dusk Till Dawn actually became something that that you know starts off as this silly horror romp, and then by the end of it was like a gut-wrenching uh, you know, requiem for a dream style, I don't think I want to watch that again because it'll give me nightmares kind of thing. I mean, I, there's a place for that movie too. Just it, It's not something that I tend to like in movies. I prefer when a film is just upfront about the kind of movie it is. But right, this is yeah. like unlike any other movie, so I guess it's hard for it to do that. <laughs> I think this movie does it quite well. I mean, it just I'm talking in a general sense. It shows us very early on that it's lighthearted, and it doesn't take itself overly seriously, and it inhabits a magical space. Yeah. There yeah. are moments still, much like I said with Lebowski, that kind of sneak up on it and, and hit me. I kind of liked the George Clooney's final plea to the skies before the flood hit. And I was weirdly touched by the fight for the toad. That Delmar takes such a brutal beating from, from uh, the John Goodman yeah. character. Uh, and when that 
Toad dies, like he's so convinced that that was his friend, like he he mourns it and he can't believe that it's happening. It, I don't know, it's absurd, but it has impact. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is imp- emotionally impactful. It does work. So I, I, I have that in that in that movie theater conversation, <laughs> where having the really loud whisper. We thought you was a toad. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, it was a, we thought you was a toad. What? We thought you was a toad. I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> they just dropped it. Well, that was our mistake then. <laughs> I, 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 have, I can't relate to people who hate the movie. I just know that they're out there. But um, I'm running out of things to say other than just heaping praise upon well, it. Well, I want to point out that this is, since somebody brought this up at the beginning, this is another example of a movie where uh, male identity or some sort of quest for manliness or masculinity is present in Ulysses' uh, ultimate goal to return to his role as as the paterfamilias. And uh, another another Cohen woman who's got him by the balls and is really emasculating him throughout. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of missed the sweet, charming Holly Hunter. Even though she owned high in uh, in Rising Arizona, I felt the love there. I think some of the love was missing in this performance. <laughs> I, I honestly, I think I could imagine people bristling at this, and this is a hyperbolic statement. Although I think based in something, there's there's a slight incel ethos in some going through the Coen Brothers movies, and like a kind of a suspicion of women or they, they like having naggy shrill women and if I have one complaint about this one I think maybe she was a little a Too little a shrill for my face I agree actually that the Holly Hunter's character in in this uh, movie is it just doesn't serve the film well in that uh, we really need to understand in a small number of screen minutes uh, why Ulysses really wants to be with her and that doesn't come across so well just because there's there's not enough time we don't see enough between them we just see the snarkiness and i want a happier ending for him and uh, i think well he's going to be in this marriage where he's being yelled at all the time for stuff she makes up let alone the stuff he actually does (laughs) the movie's lighthearted and wants to have a happy ending it'd be nice if it had a happy ending for everyone yeah but again, it's it's harmless and it's fun, and it just wants to put a smile on your face. So I, I mean, please watch it if you haven't. Is that yeah? For a long time, this was one of my favorite movies, um, and I still think it would be. Although it's just naturally suffered some diminishing returns last time I watched it because I've seen it a million times, right. like watching fiction again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's great. I I I never get bored while watching it. I do still like it. I will say that more than. Uh, most Coen Brothers movies I do feel like it it's not that it's dated it's that I think I was maybe swept up in everybody's love for that movie at the time I do still really enjoy the movie but I don't know how high it comes on my on my overall Coen Brothers list I don't know if it's on the top half right I'm that's gonna be so hard when we have 18 to do (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's interesting because I've been um, going online and looking up lists of the Coen Brothers movies ranked. And the one consistent thing with them is there's no consistency. Yeah. Uh, Which like I think Oprah's is cool. Is sometimes, <laughs> it's sometimes at the bottom. Like, I've seen it as the very worst Coen Brothers movie on one of those lists. Um, I put it more at the top. 
I mean, I put it at the very top, but I mean, it, I could, it could also fit in the middle. It just really depends. Well, like with most types of fandom, if if you are a, a true appreciator of a specific artist, a specific author, musician, whatever, uh, and you don't have a an at least occasionally rotating favorite piece of work by that musician or artist, then you're maybe not thinking very deeply about their work or you're not really steeped enough in it to be you know my favorite shifts around from time to time as i find new things to appreciate that definitely happens for me with i think that diversity of opinion just suggests the strength in all of the films personally absolutely uh we're almost at a half an hour so are we good with oh brother i'm good with oh bro let's move on you say he was being blackmailed by who you don't know for having an affair with who you don't know did anyone else know about it? Probably not. You don't know. You want to test something, you know, scientifically. How the planets go around the sun, why the water comes out of the tap. You got to look at it. But sometimes you look at it, your looking changes it. My wife has dealt me some bum cards. Or maybe I just haven't played them right. I don't know. Life is just so damn wonderful, you almost won't believe it. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you and me. You keep your mouth shut. I'm an attorney. You're a barber. You don't know anything. I'm not proud of what I did. Are you? What kind of man are you? Science. Perception. Reality. Doubt. Reasonable. Doubt. I'm saying, sometimes the more you look, the less you really know. The man who wasn't there is definitely going to be the Coens going back to their, quote, more difficult cinema. <laughs> There's not a clear through line to this story. Um, Billy Bob Thornton is a barber, and he narrates the entire movie. And to the audience, it seems like he's constantly chattering away in our ear. But it's interesting how most of his performance is Billy Bob Thornton slowly smoking a cigarette and staring out into space in the middle of a room <laughs> as the camera swirls around them and other people talk at him and things happen to him. <laughs> Some of the stuff, he, he situations he puts himself into, but uh, it's a really bizarre character study. Again, instead of a pothead playing the role of the central figure in a, in a really convoluted, spiraling narrative, here we have this barber. And I love the story that Billy Bob Thornton tells about getting the part. He'd been sat next to the Coens at a few events. He'd met them a little bit, but he gets a phone call saying, like I was talking about in the previous review, uh, we've written this script. We have you in mind for the lead character. Can we send it over to you? To which he responded, I will do it. <laughs> I mean, send me the script. I, well, <laughs> but I will do it. There are just certain people who don't suck. And as he says in the documentary on the disc, and he was very confident that the Cohen brothers were, were, were said people who didn't suck. And I, I, I gotta give Thornton credit because I do think he's really good in the movie because I don't know how you would approach it. I don't know if he had an earpiece in him to tell him where they were as far as the narration or, or like... No, that was all achieved in editing, I'm sure. There's all this just weird stoicness and it seems like there's nothing going on in his head, but the narration is telling us all of this crazy, rich tapestry, which is unfolding. And, and is usually something I don't like in movies, <laughs> right? I'm not usually a fan of narration-heavy movies. 
And the movie, Just much saying. like other Coen Brothers movies, has a lot of strange detours to it that we're not quite sure why we're there. Why are we spending so much time with Scarlett Johansson's character playing the piano? What's the deal with the widow showing up to tell a story about the UFO? You know, there's a lot of like seemingly deliberately distracting and. Now, I won't say off-putting, because I find the movie strangely hypnotizing, but elements that uh, are hard to get your head around. I come out that I like the movie, but I also don't understand it. And it's, a, I think, for me, a bigger version of the problem, if you can call it a problem, that I had with Barton Fink. Because I love Barton Fink, too. But <laughs> I walked out of this movie kind of stunned and mystified by it. But it's a riddle that I've never solved, and that I'm increasingly starting to think is not super solvable. <laughs> Do I hate this movie? Not at all. I love the style of it. I love the beautiful, rich black and white. I love the noir of it. I love that the first time I saw it, I found it devastatingly sad. And the more I watch it, the more I find it to be kind of funny. <laughs> Somehow at times, it's got that weird Cohen repeat. You, you kind of find more in it the more you look at it. So I would never say The Man Who Wasn't There was one of my favorite of the Coen Brothers movies, but I am a defender of it. And I know it splits a lot of folks, so I'm curious to hear where you guys land. As I have been curious to hear what you guys think. Uh, I'm so when I was the watching it, the first time I saw it, it was in the theaters, and this was following up Oh Brother, which I absolutely loved. So for me, this was not quite a disappointment on the level of The Phantom Menace, but it was like a really dizzying highs to dizzying lows. I really strongly disliked it the first time I saw it. Um, this time, I didn't, I just didn't strongly dislike it. Uh, it's interesting that you compared it to Barton Fink, because one of my notes while watching it is, it feels like it was written by Barton Fink. Oh, yes. Just desperately wanted to try to be deep exploration of the modern man or the common man. Um, I mean, it, the question of what does it mean to be a man in the modern world, in the modern suburban world, I think it's better handled with Big Lebowski because I don't think it's an interesting question. So Big Lebowski, you know, treats it with all the gravitas of a not interesting question. Uh, whereas Men Who Isn't There, I feel it, it takes itself far too seriously. Um, so yeah, I found it, it it's masterfully shot. Um, I mean, looking at because there's endless scenes of Billy Bob Thornton's face and like just the shadowing is so perfect and the mood is so perfect. Um, as far as cinematography goes, I would say above reproach, but right. uh, I didn't really like it as a movie. I agree on the cinematography. Uh, I agree on it being not, it's, it's not to my taste. As far as Coen Brothers movies go, it is not one of my favorites. And uh, much like Larry said, I have uh, had a difficult time articulating why. And when I run into that kind of thing, I, uh, in order to figure it out, I will often go to trying to figure out a more granular piece of the movie, like the main character. I can't quite figure out the barber. Um, is he a reliable narrator? That's a question I want to put to you guys, because I posit that he is maybe not. Uh, and that he might actually be misleading us on a fair number of things. I would also put forth the question of, do you think he's a psychopath? So what, what evidence do you look at for if he's an unreliable narrator? 
the one that got me this time is the straight-faced telling that he takes as far as expecting the audience to believe that this 15-year-old Scarlett Johansson character just, like, enthusiastically sucked his dick while they were driving this down the road out of nowhere after just him innocently teaching piano lessons, right? It felt like the lie that the criminal is telling the gumshoe. Are we the gumshoe in this gumshoe story? Is the narrator trying to lie his way out of the crime I don't know yeah. I don't know Is if I definitely agree with that I think that there's certain things because we're being told from his point of view you're we kind of take his side a little bit and I so don't if, if I it was, well him. he's totally unlikable in every way but he wants to make this money off of this laundry scheme he meets this shady Joe Polito character and uh, he's gonna blackmail the guy who's been sleeping with his wife now he, you could say he presents this all of his, as a scheme to make money, but at its heart, it's revenge, right? He wants to take the money from the guy who's been putting the wood to his wife, but he doesn't have any emotional like life on his face to suggest that. I think he mentions it once that it kind of stung a little bit, but like, <laughs> I think that there are other ways to get the money uh, that didn't target the James Gandolfini character. I understand the problems people have with the movie, but here's the thing, and I noticed this when, when I rewatched it with Paxton. It's like, I really love the scene where he meets Joe Polito and they talk about the genius new idea of dry cleaning. I really like the scene, you know, <laughs> where he's uh, meeting Tony Shalhoub for the first time. I was time. just going to say, I and, like all the Tony Shalhoub scenes. And I like all of these isolated scenes. There's all these great moments and beats throughout the movie. But somehow, tied all together... I don't know that all the pieces fit, but while I'm watching these isolated moments and scenes, I'm I'm absolutely wrapped up in them. And it, but it has all the trappings of a of a, a Raymond Chandler gumshoe story, but it's not like, that somehow. Except for one, I well maybe not the Raymond Chandler, but sort of, um, like you get these narrative heavy, but they don't speak characters. These men of few words. And I think what they were going for, this was like an admirable swing in a miss. They wanted a character that was such a blank slate that it's kind of somebody that's existing in the world but not existing. Um, but I think it was just a little bit too much with him. So like when we find out that his wife is cheating on him, like, God, you should cheat on him. He is, he is such a... Can you imagine how horrible it would be to be married to this guy? Like he's... he's, he's too nothing he's too empty and so i mean it's hard to latch on which i think was one of the reasons why it's hard to connect with the movie but how nothing he is is part of what leads to my question that uh it may be stupid but i don't think is worth totally dismissing just yet that like is this man a uh an somehow undeveloped personality is he a psychopath or a sociopath there, in so many ways there doesn't seem to be anyone home and, like, I just am curious what you guys think the entire car accident, sexual affair with the teenager even means to the movie. Because to me it feels like a really big event in the movie, but it also weirdly feels glossed over by the story. Almost mm -hmm. like he's glossing it over. He is, after all, the storyteller. 
So I think there's something, I don't know if they had this in mind, there's something kind of psychopathic or sociopathic about the narrative style because it doesn't, like he doesn't really seem to understand that other people are people. That's one, like one of the big hallmarks is like, you're, again, your brain can kind of know that people express emotions, but you can't internalize that other people have internal lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I think they were doing a study of that, or it's just how it turned out, because they wanted a, a character with so little emotion. With the Scarlett Johansson character, I saw it as a, a, a weirder version of, this is going to be a strange pull, but <laughs> Kevin Spacey in American Beauty is all obsessed over this Mina Savari character, who's this... Uh, teenage cheerleader and he almost has sex with her before he realizes that it is a dream and to make that dream a reality would be to cross a really crazy line blah 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 uh and this i will also confess i got because i'm this much of a cohen nerd that i listened to the commentary with billy bob thornton and he actually pointed it out and it's an addition that the, he had to point out to the cohen brothers there's a couple of scenes where we see him watching Scarlett Johansson and there's one scene where her dad's in the room and he's kind of looking out in the corner of the room and just sort of absorbed in the music. When her dad's not in the room, he's staring at her and he is pitching a tent. Yeah, hmm. it's visible. There's, there's, <laughs> there's serious lies being told on behalf, like by the narrator to the viewers in this movie. And, and to himself, in his head, like getting her her career and somehow being a part of her life, he's not telling himself that he wants to have sex with this girl, but... He clearly wants to have sex with this girl, but he's going to save her, he's going to rescue her, he's going to be this figure, and this is going to be the thing that's going to make his life better after he makes this laundromat scheme happen. And no, that's not defensible (laughs) behavior, but I think that's where where that comes from, that he somehow sees in her hope of a a possible future, and it's completely ridiculous. (laughs) I wonder if a character study of an empty character, if that's what they're setting out to do, might end up just organically mushrooming into a character study of a sociopath. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, that's um, a more interesting way that I don't think they did that on purpose, but it would have been more interesting if they had done that on purpose. Um, because again, I think it was because there was that other one that they did for next episode with the guy that stands on roofs, the a seriously boring man or whatever it was called. <laughs> a serious man. Um, it's the same thing about like some suburban person who's feels like there's more to life and there you know lots of um illusions of greatness be they religious or extraterrestrial um but then he just lives a simple life and dies and they're like what is it what does it mean to be a man in this suburban world mm-hmm. which again i think is kind of a boring question but one that they take a little bit too seriously in their slower movies right so I took two, wrote down two notes that I found uh, today while cleaning up papers, uh, while watching this episode and or watching this movie. One of them was two parts Blood Simple, one part Fink. So I certainly feel the Barton Fink with you guys. The other one was Hobart Arms, which is the name of the hotel in this movie. Uh, and uh, what caught my eye about it is it's one letter away if you change the H into an N from being an anagram for Barton Arms, which is the name of the hotel in Miller's Crossing. But a Googling led me to uh, finding out that the Hobart Arms is also the name of the hotel in The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Hmm. So I guess everything was very considered, whether we knew it or not. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I find 
after this discussion that this movie remains an enigma and feels more like a puzzle than ever. I feel like there is something intentional going on that I don't think it sounds like any of the three of us have figured out quite what they were intending to do yet. I Here's a little bit of a criticism. I love Tony Shalhoub in this movie. I love Tony Shalhoub and Barton Fink. And going forward, we're not going to see a lot more Tony Shalhoub with the Cobros. And I can't help but wonder why, because he's so awesome whenever he shows up. I love Freddie Riedenschneider, even though he's another hateful character. He's hilarious, mm. right? I struggle with movies or stories where our protagonist is utterly contemptible. Right, where there's just nothing... He's not even necessarily contemptible. There's nothing to like about the main character in this story. And even Barton Fink. There are things about Barton that at least I like, I mean, even though he is uh, sort of a rotten person. Uh, well, but, it, but the movie, I think, invites you to not like Barton Fink in a way that this one I don't think invites you to... I think we're invited to sympathize with the narrator for some reason. Which is odd, because I sure don't. But yeah. I sort of agree with you that the movie seems to expect us to or ask us to, which brings me back to the notion, is this movie a plea by a guilty man lying to his audience about what happened? Well, we know that the narration is the article that he's writing in the prison at the end. Oh, that's uh, right. And he's saying, I'm sorry if I went on in a few places, but they pay me for the word, which kind of, I guess, that's justifies right. the extraneous uh, corners so of the story. So really easily explains why he's glossing over things like the sex with the teenager. Yeah. Uh, well, and uh, that we're so locked into his perspective of things and not very emotionally <laughs> with the others. I also wanted to mention James Gandolfini. I think this is like one of the great he's a supporting role in here but it's one of these roles that really defines what he did so well in that he was incredibly powerful and scary but able to show us this vulnerability too like his life is being ruined by this <laughs> and uh it it's cracked him down to the foundation and uh first he's begging him when he, he comes to him almost as a friend in a desperate need of help and then when he realizes that this is the man that's behind him like he invites him to this office and you're like did he bring him there to kill him does he know he's gonna kill him or is it a spur of the moment thing like what was the plan <laughs> mm. and i it's not a big role he's not in the movie long he has an absolutely awful death but i i thought he was great in it <laughs> Yeah, I think he was one of the one of the things that I unambiguously liked about this movie was every every scene that he was in. The, I mean, he just can't help but be like a, a an attention magnet, and I think, I think he did a great job. Uh, Francis McDormand is another difficult wife character, right? <laughs> I mean, we get where it's coming from, but we we don't see much about her character that isn't sharp. <laughs> I will right. say politely, it's. It's interesting that the tough Francis McDormand character of Margie is also maybe the most sympathetic and like just sort of uh, caring wife character that they've written, at least as a major character in any of their stories. Margie's not just a capable cop, etc., etc., but she's a very kind and loving person, at least it seems from what we see of her. Of course, yeah. And that is uncommon among Cohen wives, even... Cohen Wives, played by Frances McDormand. You gotta get your dip tat. 
<laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, just as I was saying in the Oh Brother bit about there being this small kind of incelly current, this one, like with the cheating, unemotional wife, and then the hot young girl that just can't keep dicks out of her mouth, it, it feels like there may be a problem with the people who are writing it, or just not even a, well, not a problem with it, but just they don't have as big an imagination for female characters as they do for male characters. Well, I, I think I've said before that if there's a thing that I think the Coens might not be great at is as far as is bringing the heat between characters. One of the big problems about Intolerable Cruelty, for me, is the lack of heat between uh, the two leads in that. Like, sexual chemistry or, or that side of things, there's a little bit more coldness, a little bit more detachment to the Coen brothers. It, it almost feels like that they, they get uncomfortable once the underwear comes off. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with you guys, but I think the main thing going on, though, is that he's a grown-ass man lying to us about date-raping a teenager. So... <laughs> Right, like, of course, it doesn't make sense that the teenage girl is trying to throw dicks in her mouth, and right in this particular case, I don't think it's necessarily that that it's unimaginative writing of female characters. It's that he's lying. Uh, I have said my piece on that movie. I think <laughs> I, it's the. I'll say this about it: it's the first movie so far that we've watched in the Coen Brothers that if someone said, "I've never seen a Coen Brothers movie before, and I'm going to watch The Man Who Wasn't There," I would say. I would consider saying, ah... Don't start uh, there. You might not want to start there. That's heavy <laughs> Cohen. Heavy Cohen. You're getting in the deep end of the pool. Um, the Francis McDormand character is difficult, but I think it's interesting that scene when they're talking with Tony Shalhoub and the Billy Bob Thornton character says, well, what if I tell him this story and he tells the truth? What if I met with him and there was a fight and he ended up getting killed and I did it? It mm -hmm. was me. And... Upon hearing it, she knows that it's true. And Frances McDormand plays that all plays out on her face. Again, if they shortchanged the character, the performance sure got there for me. Mm -hmm. And she ends up killing herself in, in prison. And the whole idea that he does end up going to the chair, but for a dude that he didn't kill, <laughs> for a dude that presumably the James Gandolfini kill, character killed, right? Uh, that goes to the Bud Simple has everybody coming into it with their own perspective and each perspective being a little bit wrong <laughs> about what actually happened I think there's a lot there but it's not yeah it will never be one of my favorite Coen brothers but I do like it and I would defend it I would say it was worth a watch but we yeah we're in the deep end of the, <laughs> the pool here this is this is for like hardcore Coen lovers and uh, maybe I'm making excuses for it but I still I never don't find it interesting. I rewatched it with Paxton for this podcast, probably my fifth or sixth set bat with it, and I still found it interesting. So there's that. It it is interesting. I feel like it's. Would you guys say it's uh, safe to say it's one of the more nihilistic pieces of Coen Brothers? If out no there? country didn't exist. <laughs> so I think there's kind of two kinds of nihilism um, in, in generally and in the Coen Brothers corpus. There's like the real nihilist Lebowski, where it's like just kind of all in your face, like dark black, life has no meaning, which I would put this in. And then there's kind of the, you know what, benevolent nihilism of No Country for Old Men, like kind of more interesting, the idea that having no meaning isn't necessarily 
a German expressionist thing. So, mm. so this one was one of the reasons why I think it's up its own ass a little bit um, in in its nihilism. I don't like its nihilism. That said, it, it seems like a totally negative review. Um, I think this is what uh, a wise man might call a sound off movie for me. I think it's perfectly shot, yeah. um, visually impeccable. I just don't like the characters or the ideas. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> well, I guess it's another one of these unhelpful reviews where I guess people just have to fucking watch it and make sense of it <laughs> in their own way. Is that good enough on the man who wasn't there, I guess? I think so. Yeah. Friends, today, Miles Massey is here to tell you that love need cause us no fear. I assume you're a carnivore. Oh, Mr. Massey, you have no idea. Love need cause us no shame. Objection, Your Honor! Strangling the witness! I'm going to allow it. Love is good. Marilyn, what a pleasant... <clears throat> Who the hell are you? Holly and I are planning to marry. Dump him. I could have you just part for that. You fascinate me. So Intolerable Cruelty was the Coen Brothers films that shouldn't have been. Uh, not just because I know you guys are not big fans of it, but because they never intended to direct this movie. This screenplay was being passed around Hollywood all over the place. If you look, Trey Parker and Matt Stone both have credits on this screenplay as well. This concept was sold and this studio was going to do it. And this uh, producer, I want to say Brian Grazer, it could be wrong. The guy usually works with Ron Howard producing all of his movies. Somehow talked the Coen brothers to first do a draft of the script and then to end up directing it. And they just recently worked with George Clooney and their involvement got Clooney involved. Clooney's involvement got Catherine Zeta-Jones involved. The rest of the movie ended up happening. But... Uh, Apparently they were like really weird about it. It's like this is so commercial. This is so not us. And the idea was, well, this is the good news. This will be the Coen Brothers movie that it won't just be for the Coen Brothers fans. With this airtight cast and this sort of romantic, crowd pleasing, you know, comedy to, to to feed out there, it just couldn't go wrong. It just couldn't fail. Uh -huh. I don't think I dislike this movie as much as it feels like you guys do. I, I do find a lot of it fun and charming and uh, in, enjoyable, but I will concede that this is very much lesser Coen Brothers, and um, this trajectory here, I, was, I wasn't sure how I felt about The Man Who Wasn't There, but I knew that Intolerable Cruelty felt like a step down for the Coen Brothers. I didn't have to fight with myself on it. I was like, this doesn't feel as smart and as engaged as I expect from a Coen Brothers movie. All of that said, do I think it's a bad movie? No. Do I think it's unfunny? No, I actually do think it's funny. I understand that once again, we're dealing with a lot of quote unquote despicable characters, but I, I guess I'm coming, especially in this weird arch fantasy comedy world that I am willing to get past these things. If I decided that I, you know, 
the, the personalities of the characters were going to bake the day for me, I couldn't enjoy, like, Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm. Because if I ever met a person like Larry David in the real world, I'd probably want to show the life out of him. But I do enjoy watching shows where he gets himself into these crazy scenarios. You do know a person like Larry David. I'm sure I do. I'm no, sure everybody you're does. sitting right next to him. If I had Larry David's money, I'd basically be Larry David. <laughs> But I mean, saying I can I just get over the hump. Crazy with the money. The That's idea behind the romantic comedy is every pot has a lid. This conniving divorce lawyer who specializes in getting big settlements for people who don't deserve it, and this woman who makes dedicated her life to just marrying rich men so she can fleece them for their money. I mean, on the surface, yeah, they are completely empty. But I think that the movie's more just about being energetic and making you laugh. I take less issue with that and just more issue with the fact that I just put the Coen brothers on a higher bar than this. This is a perfectly acceptable diverting comedy, but there's nothing deep or rich about it. And for that, it falls pretty low for me in the Coen canon. That's where I start. Except you just kind of said most of what there is to say. No, <laughs> you go ahead, Matt. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I, I would be a little bit more negative about it than you i i think there there are coen brother movies that i don't like very much but a lot of that is just not to my taste this one i think maybe their only movie i don't know if i would say it's their only bad movie but it's their own only movie that i think is no good that really has nothing to recommend it it, it reminds me it came out at about the same time as a ewan mcgregor movie called down with love and it just seemed like the same thing, kind of a hack trying to recapture the golden age of Hollywood, which is like a time that for some reason movies are nostalgic for, but no person is because those movies weren't actually very good. And it's a lesson and, the Coens continue to not learn. Like they always want to go back to the golden classic days of Hollywood because it's so magical and everybody loves it. Hail Caesar is the most star-studded cast you'll ever encounter, and it laid a huge fucking egg. I think that the desire to go back to this Capra-style 50s romance is something that a lot of film snobs wish was true, but just demonstrably isn't, as far as the public. Except people were Well, and there's another problem with that. Sorry, I'm just going to... Finish your thought. Sorry. Sorry. Please go. Because you had mentioned Capra... I mean, this was one of our disagreements about Hudsucker Proxy, about, like, just going back to this simpler time. But the thing about Capra is he wasn't simple. He was a political filmmaker. Like, what they're trying to do is recapture that era, which was already kind of, you know, it's when Hollywood is getting cracked down on and they've got all of these standards, so things are kind of light and family fair. But it's going back to that and even neutering it more, so turning it into less than than something that was already pretty pretty mild to begin with. Well, this is almost vapid. I don't think they've made many movies that feel as that have as little substance as this movie does, as far as subject material goes. As far as I can figure it out, there's little more the movie is saying than hey, wouldn't it be fun and funny to write a love story about two heartless people who make a business out of preying on people's uh, marital strife to fall in love and have marital strife of their own? And the short version of the answer to that question is it would be kind of diverting for 80 minutes, yeah. But it's as a central idea to hold the movie and propel it forward, even with the Coen brothers writing and directing, or at least writing a draft, Mm -hmm. touching up a script, 
and then Joel directing the thing, the movie, right from the very earliest frames, makes strange, very non-Cohen-esque choices. Right, The first vision, the first time we see Miles Massey, the George Clooney character, we can't see him. He's covered up by reflections of foliage on the windshield. Now, I'm certain that's a, a choice to do that, right? Miles is, is can't see himself for the trees. There are all sorts of ways you could interpret that that image, but that I bring it up because it's a good example, and it comes right at the beginning of the movie, of what I feel like the movie does over and over again, which are make these rational choices that I just don't like. Like, I don't... I understand what you're doing by covering up the main character's face and making him this amorphous, tooth, just toothy grin that we can barely see through the windshield when we meet him because he's sort of another empty person, much like the man who wasn't there. There kind of isn't anything to Miles Massey beyond his own greed and narcissism. So I get those choices, but it's not enjoyable to watch. It, or, Right, I don't like looking at an amorphous person with nothing inside them for eighty minutes, ninety minutes, however long the movie is. Oh, just to, to building on that. Also, having a romantic comedy with two leads that have this sexual chemistry of Anakin Skywalker and Padme. Yes, like maybe that's my problem because uh, I actually think that Clooney is pretty funny in the role. I don't think Catherine Zeta-Jones has as much funny stuff to do as he does, but like he did make me laugh a few times. But there is no heat between those characters at all. There's no chemistry between them. There's no... And like that's that's crucial. You need to believe that these people, on some level, love each other, even when they're at war. That that it's because of this intense connection that they have, and that not being there is a huge miss. Or at least we have to believe that they're drawn to one another. Presumably, the only thing that is that attracts them to one another is a mutual respect for how terrible the other person is. They're good at being who they are, right? Like that. Not just they're good at being who they are. They're good at being. A shark, an incredibly self-serving, uh, vicious, uh, single-minded predator. But I guess that puts them on an even playing field, so to speak. Yes, but uh, I agree with you. There's there's a lack of chemistry. In a lot of cases, when there's a lack of chemistry in a movie, it's a problem in the performance. In this case, I don't think that's what's going on. I think Catherine Zeta-Jones and George Clooney both put in solid performances. I think on the page. There's no reason for these people to like one another. They're both utterly contemptible human beings. But they're hot. Well, kind of on the page, there's the hiring the hitman just comes really abruptly. It's obviously something that it's one of those things that got drafted and redrafted so many times that they knew they needed to have that, but it's not teased at all. Well, and so when she cons George Clooney and he hires a hitman to kill her, you're like, what's what's going on here? This is... This is not the same movie. Well, is the whole movie just one big stab at the notion that lawyers are the worst people in the world? <laughs> uh, I mean, it would certainly be consistent with the uh, brothers. Even the sort of like affable junior partner or legal assistant or whoever he is, the guy who's got the T-shirt that says "objection" when yeah. Miles is practicing at tennis, even he is just right on board with hiring the hitman immediately. Like, oh yeah, obviously we'll just kill her. Although there's that weird scene that George Clooney makes about love and how he doesn't want to be a divorce divorce lawyer and all the divorce lawyers stand up and applaud. So then there's also this inconsistent thing about, I guess, lawyers all love love because love is the greatest power of it all. 
I didn't take it that seriously. I feel like I'm being put in the position to defend the movie. And I, I, again, I started off by saying this is far from my favorite of the Coen Brothers movies. But I, I do think that there's pleasures to be found if you want them. I really liked Billy Bob Thornton. Because when we first introduced to his character, we were thinking, man, this guy's like a hilarious idiot. But then we get this extra layer when we find out that he was playing this idiot. And part of him cracking up might have actually been him cracking up because he thinks how ridiculous this, this Texan is. And yep. all of a sudden the performance has this extra layer on it. One of my big beefs with the movie is... More Jeffrey Rush, please. Mm -hmm. Every second that Jeffrey Rush is on screen in this movie, I think is very funny. I really like him. And I agree. He like bookends the movie, but I just I thought he was hilarious in it. Uh, the, uh, a controversial thing is the whole uh, Cedric the Entertainer and the nail yo ass sort of portion, and that doesn't feel very Cohen's. Uh, but uh, I don't know. It didn't bother me as much as it seemed to bother other people. I don't know what the big deal is, man. He's just. He's the ass nailer. If you want a tactician, you call a tactician. If you want an ass nailed, you call Gus Pitch. This this is amusing to me. If you want tact, you call a tactician. Yep. Time out. You're talking about a controversy that I didn't hear about. Do you mind just explaining? I just know a lot of people hate that whole nail your ass game show. I don't know if they just thought it was somehow beneath the Coen brothers or if it was too crass or there was just something... Uh, juvenile about it. I don't know, but people don't like that. <laughs> I do find that they're uh, seemingly, I don't know if crass is the right word, but the, the movie goes lowbrow, which is not, I mean, the Coens are not above, above going lowbrow. They do it all the time. I often love it when they do. But yeah, Gus Petch's whole ass nailer thing in this movie is uh, pretty lowbrow, and this movie does do that. That's uh, one of the funniest things in the movie. I don't know. I, I found them. I, I did laugh while I watched the movie. I have to confess. Yeah, I, I, but I, like what I'm saying is this supposedly controversial bit. I think is one of the funniest oh, things yeah? in the movie. I it's, wouldn't say it was one of the funniest things in the movie, but I didn't. I wasn't bothered by it. I didn't quite understand what everyone's nose was out of joint for. But I think if you want tact, you call a tactician. If you want. <laughs> An ass nailed, you call Gus Petch is maybe the single best line of dialogue in this movie. <laughs> Just weird details. Um, oh, I can't remember. Edward Herman, I think, is the name of the actor, the the guy from the Lost Boys, uh, who's this billionaire who's obsessed with titties and trains, and his entire life is just titties and trains, and there's just something amusing about what a child this guy is, and that he dies doing the thing that he loves. I don't know. There's something about that that pleases me. Based on the fact that I just learned uh, at the beginning of this uh, review that uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone had their hands in this, that feels like Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Right. It was, yep. it was in their bizarre, pervy draft, and it was just too good to cut. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing about the movie, is like you, you, it has a Too Many Cooks vibe, and that's probably why it feels so discordant from the Coen brothers. Like I, I think that it was a hot potato that got passed around and maybe it just wasn't a good idea for the movie and the Coens tried it and I figure like if the Coens couldn't make it work it just wasn't gonna work <laughs> the, there are a bunch of swings and misses in the, like the Heinz the Baron Klaus von Espy character is another one that just I remember chuckling at it the first time I watched the movie and it it's what is it that's funny about that uh, 
performance and character other than just the sheer ostentatiousness of it. Did you guys find the Heinz the Baron Klaus von Espy a little bit beneath the Coen's usual... He was definitely one of their cartoon characters. He didn't seem to belong in the real world, but in that way, I guess, it fit in this world, because it certainly... <laughs> I like playing with names. It just feels like it's rare to see the Coen brothers stoop to the level of, like, ha-ha, this Lacky guy's name. got a funny name. But that was part of the, the thing, we, when they were looking for their... <laughs> What was the name of the... Tenzig Norgay. Yeah, they have to start with the guys with funny names. I love the interplay with the lawyers. Richard Jenkins getting all pouty because he's completely outmatched by George Clooney. George Clooney's awesome spit take when they make the initial offer that you know he was timing just perfectly so he could do the spit take. It is a, <laughs> like, good, it is a really good spit take. Uh, there's things to I, like. They I was happy when I saw... When Richard Jenkins was on screen, as with every movie that he's in... Uh, no movie has ever been not better for his presence in it. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but I think one of my notes was that even Richard Jenkins couldn't save this. Uh, you know, so the, the what you were saying about Heinz the Baron Klaus von Espy, for me, it was just like a, you know, whatever. It's just another thing in this movie. I, I can, I'm not going to disagree with that. More so than maybe any other Coen Brothers movie, this movie feels like a whatever. Like, the yeah. whole movie feels like a whatever to me. Yeah. I don't resent that it exists. I, I think everybody, performance-wise, everyone in it is between fine and fantastic. And the story is two notches beneath anything that's an original Cohen story or anything they've adapted from, from well, who have they adapted from? Cormac McCarthy and who else? Anyway... That's pretty much all I have to say personally about that movie, I think. The, it's the least romantic romantic comedy ever made. <laughs> but people seem to... Fr- Go ahead, brother. One of the problems when your romantic lead is a closeted homosexual that just... You just don't feel anything between those two. <laughs> yeah. I, I would be angry about it if I didn't think it was funny. Um, but it, it's just not... It doesn't... It doesn't do for me what I expect the Coen brothers to do for me. And on that level, it's a disappointment. But I have to say, by Hollywood romantic comedy standards, a genre of which I'm not a huge fan, I wouldn't say this was bad at all. I think what Matt's saying is that it would have worked better if it had been Michael Douglas instead of George Clooney. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just really feel the heat with him. You can yeah. imagine Well, and there's apparently some real okay. heat. Some real heat in between him and, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. By the They're way, Hollywood, married, it's right? not too late for Basic Instinct 3. I want to see just how far down those old man balls are going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're done about Intolerable Cruelty then, if we're, if we're talking about Michael Douglas's balls. If you just keep staying alive, you will find out how low down those old man <laughs> balls say, my friend. How low they go. <laughs> they go. Just thought I'd leave y'all with some cinnamon cookies. There'll be no more. Unfortunately, Ms. Munson has complicated the situation. Well, I know how to decomplicate it. What you doing? I know your mama raised you better than me. Hey, I'm gonna be my maker. I'm gonna change you. Love and What was that? Well, I'm not even absolutely certain that I, I heard anything at all. We must have waffles. We must all have waffles forthwith. Damn! 
This is a Christian house, boy. No hippity hop language in here. Sometimes it's the only way. You ain't gonna hit me. I'm trying to help you, boy. Better yourself. And so you should. Madam, so you should. So unpopularly, and I've said this on the record on Rank and Review before, because we have reviewed Lady Killers. I reviewed it with our mutual acquaintance Natara Curry in like the ninth episode of the show. Lady Killers is my least favorite Coen Brothers movie. And that's gonna seem like surprising to hear after the, you know, not super warm reception that Intolerable Cruelty got. But here's the thing. I could get my head around the script being given to them and having a lot of people already attached to it and this production sort of circling around it pre-existent to their involvement. The Lady Killers is 100% the Coen Brothers' baby. They went back to New Orleans. They love shooting in New Orleans because they shot Miller's Crossing there and they're going to take a whack at this classic Alec Guinness comedy and sort of, I guess, modernize it for an American audience and setting, but... Uh, I kind of was hopeful going into this because this was a little bit of a downward slump now for me and the Coen brothers and I, I wanted the lady killers to land for me and it, it didn't. Do I think it's a bad comedy or even a bad movie? No. But this is the Coen brother movie that was made by the Coen brothers that doesn't feel like the Coen brothers to me for large swaths of the movie. It has flourishes of brilliance of like, oh there they are, there it is, that's the stuff, but it's just not there. And uh, for me, that's, that's an almost bigger disappointment than intolerable cruelty because this was all, all my bros. These are my favorite filmmakers. And, you know, Tom Hanks, uh, a dependable, well-tried story. New Orleans, a setting which I personally love. I, I should have, this should have been easy for me. This should have been a gimme. And it ends up at the bottom of the stack for me. It's not a bad movie. None of these are bad movies. But uh, you're really holding your heart I, cards close to your chest. I, I liked it. I liked it the least. Tom Hanks. Uh, do you remember the character's name? Um, yeah, it's G H G H Door. <laughs> There's a big long spiel to it. Anyway, he's this very li- <laughs> presents himself as this very richly intelligent, educated sort of Southern gentleman who solicits t- uh, to rent the basement from this. Utterly charming woman. <laughs> Goldthwait Higginson Door. There it is. Uh, There's where you Ms. and I immediately differ on this, is I don't find her utterly charming. Oh, really? I think I, I think that uh, Irma P. Hall is oh. just so charming in this movie. <laughs> oh, I think that... I thought you were being ironic when you said utterly charming. <laughs> I, I thought... She- I was for me that was one of the problems with the movie. Is oh that really? I love I her. I just wanted to get murdered. I love her. I love her. I think she's very charming. I, I'm surprised to hear that. Um, he rents the basement on the auspices that he's going to be rehearsing church music with a bunch of these really unlikely looking individuals. When in actuality, he wants to tunnel uh, to a safe that is fed by this uh, gambling barge and heist. But of course, Irma P. Hall character finds out what's going on and tells them that they either have to turn themselves in or that she will and kind of puts them in a corner where someone's got to kill this sweet old lady and well it's not that none of them want to kill the sweet old lady but it just seems to be a much tougher job than it should be it's definitely of their wacky sprawling screwballish comedies but i uh 
they have qualms. Yeah. Some of them have qualms with killing this uh, pretty innocent old lady. I don't mean I find the performance uncharming. I think she's really good. I do think that she's an uh, unenlightened twit. <laughs> and yeah, so, she's a bigoted old church lady. She's a bigoted old church lady. And like, I, don't, I know that, that uh, well, you recently gave me a hip-hop mix and it had some, some dope tunes on it, so thank you for that. <laughs> but I know that you're not steeped in hip-hop lore. The song, I Left My Wallet in El Segundo by A Tribe Called Quest that she's so angry and up in arms about as being so offensive is about the cleanest piece of music you could possibly imagine. <laughs> like, she's a Quaker. Le, no, le beyond Quaker. She's <clears throat> like, uh, tell me a, a Christian sect that will send you to hell for dancing. Right. Sort of uh, level of, of crazy person. But she's from a different time. We can uh, forgive that. She certainly doesn't deserve to be murdered. No. But I come into that movie not particularly liking that character, and I kind of want to see them pull off the heist. So I, can, I think we come into the basement in different places. Right. I can disagree with her lifestyle and still think she's an incredibly warm person. There's just this like this loving, warm energy that comes off of her, how and how much she loves the church, and she like. Uh, Unless you like rap music, though, and then you're going to burn in hell. Well, she wants them to stop listening to rap music and start going to church, and you got to slap some sense into them. Uh, <laughs> That's but awful. she seems super judgy in the way that, you know, certain people, not just Christians, but this is a problem with Christians, who are just so convinced that they know the right way to live yeah. and that they should tell you the right way to live and you should live your life in accordance to their, you know, We were talking about, in uh, Lebowski, we were talking about the Sam Elliott sort of wizened country cowboy figure. If you really sat down with the stranger and started to talk politics, I think you would find that you agreed on almost nothing. But still, he's such a warm and friendly person. He votes for but Trump, but his heart is somehow to himself a heart of gold, right? <laughs> but she's judgy. She's judgy throughout. Yeah. I mean, that's she, she doesn't strike me as warm. She's she far more judgmental than the stranger in The Big Lebowski. The, the stranger is... a not only a passive observer, but the one thing he tells the dude he's not a big fan of, that he's willing to overlook it immediately. Mm -hmm. When he says, I don't like the cuss words, and the dude says, what the fuck is the problem? And he's like, all right, yeah. that's okay. I still accept you. You're still my favorite. I was charmed by her enough that the fact that, spoilers, she ends up sending the money to the, what's the name of the university? The Christian... Bob Jones. Roberts or Bob Jones? Bob Jones but, University, like the worst thing there is. Right. Am I happy that it goes to that source? No. But I'm so happy about how happy that makes her. <laughs> you mean I can give it all? <laughs> like, she's... <laughs> no part of her wants anything to do with the money that never touched her mind for a second. And in her own warped perspective, she thinks this is an altruistic act. And she might actively be making the world a worse place, but she don't know no better. She's just this grandmother who doesn't know she she's your grandmother who would say something inappropriate at the dinner table at a family reunion everybody would kind of have to make excuses or look at the floor for a few seconds but she's just out of time she just she doesn't belong here anymore thought know? experiment ah shucks bigotry that gets trump elected and gets laws against abortion and stuff but like it's like i think that's why she rubbed me wrong right uh, maybe because 
we're living in that particular era and things don't seem to be getting better. But, you know, deep down my heart's good. I don't know nothing about nothing. And then she, like, actively makes the world a worse place. Or she funds people that are actively making the world a worse place. Would it make you and feel... It, sorry, Matt, I, the delay is getting in my way. You go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Thought experiment for you, Larry. Uh, would it give you the same warm fuzzies if she was a uh, true believer Scientologist and she left all of the money to, as a donation to the Celebrity Center of the Church of Scientology in L.A. and she felt really happy that that's what she was doing with her money? I don't know. Um, it would, I guess, depend on how it was presented to me. The, the point it was that to, for her, that's a completely unselfish good act. She doesn't realize that it's a bad act. Now you can you can call her guilty of ignorance, but she wasn't doing anything in her mind selfish. She didn't want to keep the money. She didn't want to. She tried to turn it into the authorities. The authorities didn't believe her. You know, mm-hmm. it was a, she could do whatever she wanted with that money, <laughs> right? And it's kind of sweet that she gave it to this charity, even though like it's not what she thinks it is. It, the, the idea of that, I'm forgiving of. <laughs> Uh, like, there's no, as far as she's concerned, there's no malice in her heart, which makes it, you know, doesn't necessarily make her right or make it, you know, good that she has this position on the world, but it makes me more sympathetic to her position. she could use that money for herself, and she chooses to instead give it away to what she personally believes is a more important cause. That's right. And so, I can, uh, I can see the self-sacrifice in that, and I can respect that, even though it's misguided in my opinion. That's not my issue with her character. My issue is simply that I think the movie wants us to like her more than I'm capable of because okay. I find her to be a sort of insufferable, ignorant, busybody who, I mean, I guess it is her business. They're living in her basement or rehearsing in her basement. But uh, I kind of enjoy that they're pulling one over on her because she's an ignoramus. Hmm. Well, I guess we just disagree on the Irma Gall character, but uh, I wouldn't mind dig- digging into the crew a little bit here. Um, the crew I liked. Uh, one of the reasons why, since since we're, we're already spoiling uh, the bottoms of our list, this is not the bottom of my list. You'll never guess what is. <laughs> um, one of the reasons why this is this was better than I thought it would be, because I'd read a bunch of bad stuff about it before I saw it, but actually liked most of the crew members when the when the camera was with them I liked their dynamics um, I, I didn't really like the dumb guy that much I thought his I just didn't like that character too much okay uh, the scene where she was hiding under the bed and the police thought that she was talking to a cat or an invisible person I actually that was that yeah. actually made me laugh I thought yeah. that was a good piece of farce <laughs> yes and the way the police officers humor and put up with her, and they're sort of sweetly good-natured in their own way, too, but they're utterly dismissing what is going to be a real problem for her. <laughs> I love me some J.K. Simmons. I'm not sure about IBS. Yeah, I could agree with that. And it also wasn't needed for the movie. If you cut out IBS, nothing changes. Yeah. I agree. It was a little bit too lowbrow for my taste as well, but I think I like this movie more than you guys do. Well, you've been quiet. Let me know. <laughs> no, like, uh, my uh, my indictment of her character is, in some ways, I think, a, a defense of the movie, because I think a lot of people don't like the movie because of sympathy to her that I think, well, I just maybe have less of. I, uh, 
I don't know. It's a very light movie, but I found it pretty enjoyable, especially compared to some of their heavier stuff. I would want to sit through this again before I'd want to sit through The Man Who Wasn't There again. Hmm. Pretty, yeah, I would agree with Pretty that. easily. So, since we're spoiling lists, this is not even close to the bottom of mine. Right. Well, um, I want to talk about uh, Marlon Wayans. I was recently quoted <laughs> on the podcast as saying, he was great in Requiem for a Dream, and nothing before that, and nothing since. <laughs> no. <laughs> I might have to amend that a little bit. I mean, he's fine here, but he's the first of the crew that goes, and it should be a big moment. And there's something about that death that is just under-recognized and under-felt by the, either the movie or the group. Something goes unacknowledged about how much shit changes once there's a body in the room. <laughs> well, I think maybe what it is is it reveals to us as viewers that, like, okay... These people are all worse people than I realized. Yeah. All of them are willing to continue going on with this scheme even though someone's already dead. And at that point, you either stop liking the characters or you go with it and, and are able to just go like, okay, well, this is a movie full of shitty people. <laughs> at which point, maybe you're really not going to like it because it's a bunch of shitty people in the basement of a nice old lady. But I just include her in the category of <laughs> shitty, shitty people that inhabit this movie. Actually, interestingly, um, going back to our O Brother section, uh, talking about movies that change very drastically, I think that may be one of the problems with this, is that it, it felt like a uh, not a totally different movie, but the tone really changed when Marlon Wayans died. Yeah. Uh, it changed and changed quickly, and it had never been hinted at in the movie that this could be the kind of movie where people die. Well, I mean, it's called The Lady Killers, and we're pretty sure she's not going to die. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but the warmth of the movie kind of dies a little bit <clears throat> when when the bodies start piling up. But I am able to laugh at it, especially the, the uh, what do they call him, the colonel? <laughs> his his yeah. failed attempt at killing her is one of the more elaborate and spectacular, sort of cartoonish, but strangely credible deaths. <laughs> It's brutal. I, I really liked that guy. <laughs> he did, he, I mean, kind of like the man who wasn't there, one of those people whose face just says everything. Yep. Nothing really comes out of his mouth except for cigarette smoke. Even but when he's so expressive in his non-expressions. And even when being funny, there's still just something terrifying about his <laughs> stoic silence. It's a uh, good character. No, I like the crew. I like watching terrible things happen to these terrible people. Uh, it's it felt like a sort of well I don't know I, I I enjoyed it enough this time that it sort of made me want to watch the original film because I don't know that have the Coen brothers ever remade a film before this I don't think so no it's their first true remake and I'd be curious to see how much they departed from the original farcical comedy I suspect quite a bit but I don't know only one way to find out <laughs> yeah <laughs> I thought about watching the Alec Guinness one after watching this too, um, but then I didn't. <laughs> yeah, there I'm in the same place. I like the arrogance of well, a lot of the members of the crew, especially the Tom Hanks character, is just so confident and and he believes he can talk himself out of any given situation. But 
I think he's particularly frustrated by the J.K. Simmons character because he maybe sees echoes of himself. The way J.K. Simmons keeps on saying, it's the easiest thing in the world, <laughs> right before he blows his finger off of his hand or fucks something up entirely. <laughs> like, this plan was supposed to be easy and, like, it's gone completely fucking south. <laughs> and, uh... It's like he had a real can-do spirit, and he, he did, like, you know, blew his hand off, and he <laughs> wanted a bigger cut of the money after that, but also, like, he delivered, and, you know, he was still kind of aw shucksy about it in kind of an endearing way. <laughs> but the, that did turn it for him when he was, was letting up his, just to float a balloon, what was that expression he kept on saying about getting a little bit more compensation for his missing digits, considering it would be <laughs> really... <laughs> compromise his future missions as being the tech guy you know (laughs) but that's what turns him but again we fall back to the darkness the whole mountain girl character yeah she's uh comparatively very innocent bystander who gets killed (laughs) in a very unsympathetic way and and like they make a gag about how hairy her legs are when they dump the corpse off of the bridge and it's just like that seemed like discordant from some of the stuff that came before well they they were making a black comedy it's true but it does feel beyond dark and drifting into tasteless the hairy leg on the corpse joke or like that's when she's bisected is the joke right I guess she's yeah, cut her into two different garbage bags. Yeah. yeah, lovely. Who did that job? That was a deleted scene. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> the thing that kind of bugged me uh, about the, the only thing that really bugged me about when they were dying, because the movie really picked up after that to me, um, but I didn't like that this was their second movie in a row where somebody, the dumb guy, accidentally shot himself in the head. Yeah, mm. because they had just done that, it, it felt a little bit like they could have for 15 more minutes and come up with something a bit more interesting yes and there's something so abrupt about the way he is accidentally killed and then instantly afterwards tom hanks character is instantly killed there's there's a sudden rush to the finish line there once we get down to those last two but i mostly like the movie and it is like a basically on its basic level funny i don't know why i found it so charming that the cat felt the need to dispose of the final bis- bit of evidence <laughs> the by the, the missing finger getting disposed of but i thought that was silly. weirdly it's silly, silly and but hilarious nice. but I, I i welcomed it uh, again to, to go back to where i started i i'm a fan of the coen brothers i i, I like this movie i just this was the one that really felt like I could have watched it, and if I didn't know it was the Coen Brothers, maybe have missed the fact that it was the Coen Brothers. Mm. And that, for me, is kind of an ouch. I feel that more strongly about Intolerable Cruelty, personally. Right. uh, That it feels like I could overlook it as a Cobro movie. I uh, felt like this movie brought back charm into its characterizations, and... uh, some, that was something that was missing from the men who wasn't there and intolerable cruelty. There were... Miles Massey had charming characteristics, but there, there, even though this movie is populated with terrible people, I find them to be largely not hateable. But I... Somewhere between felt nothing for and hated the barber... And I definitely hated Miles Massey and Catherine Zeta-Jones's characters. I can't remember her name. Right. Intolerable Cruelty. And then in this movie, <laughs> even though they're doing terrible things, I 
for some reason liked these characters. It's possible that this was a mood thing. Maybe I was just in a really good mood the night that I watched this. But I think it was... It felt like a return to the Coen brothers having fun in a way that Intolerable Cruelty felt like they were trying to do, but then it ended up not being any fun and was just a disappointment. This movie, while not being perfect and being far from my favorite, was fun. I, I laughed out loud a couple of times uh, watching the movie. I, I think I've only seen it twice now, including this screening. And, uh, yeah, it would be, of these six movies... Uh, near the top of the list of things that I would watch again in the near future. Like, if I was going to sit through one of these movies again, it might be The Lady Killers. To see if it was a fluke that I really enjoyed it. Was I just in a good mood that night? I'm not well, saying and if you go into it thinking, list. this is going to be the worst one, then, then all of a sudden it changes how you're watching it, maybe. Well, I went into it thinking... I, I went into it thinking, hmm, I didn't like Intolerable Cruelty as much as I remembered liking it. I wonder it's if I'll feel the same about Lady Killers, and then was surprised to find that I liked it more than, than I had initially. This is definitely one that, if I never see it again in my life, I could still probably live a successful life. <laughs> but if it was on, I was at somebody's house and they put it on, it's not hard to sit through. Yeah. So, but it, that's you know, a just, pretty low bar is, for the Coen brothers, right? <laughs> For me, anyway. Yeah, so I don't put this near the top of their uh, of their corpus, um, and I guess this is for next episode. But they went through a weird mid-career kind of slump where they kept trying to make charming comedies that weren't well received. Uh, and the next one that came out, the one with Brad Pitt that Burn everybody after hated. Reading. I like that. Pardon? movie. Burn after reading. Yeah, Burn After Reading, I actually loved. Oh, yeah. And I think I really just slowly they, they figured out how to turn their whimsical comedies into a movie that's also a good movie in its own right. Yeah. And this is like, I, I would say it's on an upward trajectory, but it's at the, the, the beginning of an upward trajectory. They also nail the stupid character. The stupid but likable character in that movie that kind of didn't work in, in The Lady Killers works pretty well in Burn After Reading. The Brad Pitt sort yeah. of like likable nincompoop. Yeah, it's both not great for a Coen Brothers movie, but not as bad as some people's reputation would for it would would suggest. I guess is where I wash up. Yeah, where I wash up is if it's a choice between watching this movie, watching Intolerable Cruelty, or getting hit in the nuts with a ball peen hammer. I'm going to pick this movie. Okay, well, that's not controversial. I don't think <laughs> it's a safe. It's a safe statement. I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. If I don't come back, you tell Mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Got a loose cannon here. You think this boy Moss has got any notion of the sorts that are hunting him? I don't know. He ought to. He's seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? bubonic plague 
crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's just all out war. You can't stop what's coming. Is this guy supposed to be the ultimate badass? You don't understand. I don't know the name of the person who brought this project to the Coen brothers, but they didn't come to it necessarily. It came to them. Somebody had acquired the rights to Cormac McCarthy and thought, you know what would be interesting? <laughs> would be if the Coen brothers took a whack at it. And they read the novel and they were like, yeah, yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> and it couldn't be a more different thing than, you know, the last couple of projects they've done, which were like screwball, goofy comedies trying to pitch to a, a broad, you know, popcorn munching box office audience. This is an imp- oppressively dark uh, pseudo-western set in the early 80s. And uh, it's as close, I think, as the Coens have or probably will come to just making a straight horror movie. <laughs> uh, this creation of McCarthy's and the, their interpretation of Anton Chigurh is this crazy, mythical force of fate, nature, evil, however you want to interpret or talk about it. And this story involving, you know, three characters, a guy who's in a mess, a guy who's hunting that guy, and the guy who's, you know, trying to clean up the mess and catching up slowly behind, is a hard thing to put across to the audience. I've said it before when I've seen Coen Brothers movie that I'd come out of it, the first viewing especially, being vaguely stunned by the movie. Lauren and I walked out of the theater for 100 for Old Men and it was like a fucking funeral march or something like we were just trying to articulate how we felt in that the movie was great but we don't feel really good right now. (laughs) It's a deeply impactful, bloody, violent, absolutely straight-faced crime thriller and it won Best Picture deservedly. (laughs) So that's where I start on No Country for Old Men. I hope we're not going to fight about it. <laughs> I don't think we're going to fight about this movie at all. Um, the weird thing about this movie to me is it came right in the middle of what I would think is kind of the, a slump in Coen Brothers movies, right? With the intolerable cruelty, lady killers, burn after reading a lot of people would say, uh, and then the, the, the man who wasn't there and a serious man, like... It's kind of the cluster of their movies that I like the least. And then this movie comes out in the middle of it that is just basically, from my opinion, it's basically a perfect movie. Um, I don't think you could make a better movie. You could make a movie that you like more or, you know, it's maybe not, it's obviously not to everybody's taste, but it's just, everything about it is so impeccable. The sound design is great, but I was watching it last night and it never really occurred to me how little ambient music there is, right? It's got one of the most suspenseful scenes with the, which the most you ever lost in a coin toss. Yeah. Um, the gas station thing. And like anybody would have put suspenseful music to, you know, to show that if he loses his coin toss, he's going to die. But like just the, the crinkling of the peanut wrapper is enough or just like what's going on outside and and in the chase scene um you know in this age of avengers movies where people punch each other for hours and hours 
this is very un-action movie-y, and it just gave, you know, the showdown in the middle of the street, that gunfight, so much more visceral. So anyway, uh, I should stop talking, but I, I just <laughs> no, think it was, every element was great. <laughs> I think this movie is a masterclass in how to achieve, how, how a great editor can use pacing and the, uh, the timing of their editing to make a movie watch almost like you're listening to a piece of music. I would agree with you that the movie approaches perfection uh, as far as how it's technically made. It's got one of the most gripping openings. Uh, there's, a, there's another movie that I like that the opening of this movie reminds me of. I think it's because they came out around the same time and I had a similar experience in watching them and that's There Will Be Blood which has an incredibly gripping, wordless, like, 20-minute opening that's just uh, um, Daniel Day-Lewis mining Digging by himself, etc., etc. This movie, starting with the the whole sequence where Llewellyn is out hunting and spots the drug deal gone wrong, etc., and launches off on, on this misadventure, uh, is absolutely, like, edge-of-your-seat, suspenseful storytelling and it can't be done better I don't think than than what the Coen brothers bring to the table in this movie I do have one thing that I dislike is too strong a word but there is a flaw for me in this movie that I don't want to jump straight to because it's not the most important thing about this movie but we'll get there as we talk about it more Uh, I I know what he's talking about but uh, just to back up as far as the tactical filmmaking our settling in with well whole getting to know the Josh Brolin character is done world wordlessly we see everything as he sees it and his point of view and when we're locked in with him particularly the whole business of him hiding the the money in the vents we're seeing exactly what he sees as he puts that in the vent the, the point of view work is just unbe-fucking-leavable in this movie. Like, you are in his head. You don't need any narration to tell you what's going on. Why is he doing this? What's happening now? But, like... It's exquisite show-me-don't-tell-me yeah. filmmaking. And, uh... It's not easily achieved. Like, uh... It's one of those things that I can really, like... I envy that level of skill and confidence. To just trust that that will come across clearly to everybody and that you don't need to spoon feed the audience at all. They're going to be with you because you're earning it with each shot. What I think, the the classic structure, right? There's the, the bad guy in Shigeru, the good guy in Tommy Lee Jones, and the kind of middle ground guy in Josh Brolin's character. It sort of sets up all these pieces where we kind of feel like we know where it's going to go. There's going to be this epic showdown that this thing is leading to. And both the book and the movie utterly, utterly denies us that. And it's it seems like it would be some kind of cheat on the audience, like you, you, you're almost deliberately trying to piss people off by denying this expectation. But the whole theme about this movie, about this generational idea of things just keep getting worse and worse, and trying to put a shape or a reason or a story on something is just an absurd notion. It's something that the... the the novel and the movie carries through to its own narrative. It's not going to give you what you expect. It's <laughs> it's going to embrace this world as a cruel place. But the way the movie finishes, I mean, you're still kind of humbled by it. 
I don't think it's a movie without hope in it. <laughs> in fact, what I take is not that the world keeps getting worse and worse. It's that as people get elderly, they, they say the world is getting worse and worse. But it's just the world, right? Like it's old people just remember a golden age. Um, Tommy Lee Jones, you know, he says he can't understand this. Um, but then there's a there's the other scene where he's talking to another old fat guy, I can't remember, but he's saying, if you told me when I was a kid that people with green hair... Bones in their hearing, nose. Yeah. Bones in their nose. And, like, it's not, it, it's not about the world deteriorating. It's just elderly people... Um, not all elderly people, but... Um, because there's the other old guy that he talks to at the end, the one with the caps and the old disgusting coffee, and his whole point is no, like you're you're just remembering this like it's a western movie, um, but that's never how things were. Yeah, but it's sort of I guess Tommy Lee Jones' sort of journey to is saying, yeah, the world has officially passed me by. I need to retire, hang up my spurs. It's it. it I don't know this world. It's not. It, I don't recognize it anymore, and. That's kind of what the movie's about. But as you're watching it, especially the first time, the movie's about Josh Brolin. <laughs> and uh, people get pissed off when they have the rug pulled out from underneath them as well. I also wanted to remember, do you have the cast up? What's the name of uh, the actress who played? Kelly McDonald. Who plays, oh, I'm still in love with her every time I see her. She's very charming, and she is, I want to say, Scottish. She was the little. She was the underage chick in Train Spotting, who Ewan McGregor hooks up with. Her name is McDonald, so I think Scottish is a safe yeah. bet. Um, but she, like the Coens, are very, very specific about their time and place and the authenticity of characters. So the fact that they cast her must have meant she must be one hell of a fucking actress. Because I, I really like her, and she doesn't have a lot of screen time, but she's just so heartbreaking. This movie feels weirdly like a companion piece to Fargo. This is something that I think all three of us have talked about off-camera in the past, and it might have even come up when we talked about Fargo in the last Coen Brothers podcast. Uh, and that strikes me as interesting, particularly since they didn't write this story, right? That it, it does feel, though, like a... Like a not a sequel to Fargo, but like it could belong in the same anthology of Cohen crime, right? There's Blood Simple, there's Fargo, there's this. Yeah, uh, I think last time I, I said that this feels like their mulligan at Blood Simple, which was, you know, really well directed, but a little bit, a little bit green. Mm -hmm. And this, this is like filmmakers at the top of their game going for something that is tonally, tonally and visually very similar. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, I just think this is. Um, what well, I did. I ranked Blood Simple at the bottom last time. Um, I think they. This is a really good mulligan. <laughs> and then it has what it brings in ports over most directly from Fargo is the existence of a character, the the lawman at the end, uh, Tommy Lee Jones in this movie, Margie in Fargo, who's left struggling to come to grips with this crazy, incomprehensible violence that's taken place that's not there in blood simple everybody ends up dead and not knowing what the hell happened except for poor francis mcdormand who gets a real short end of the stick in that film uh, well, she lives <laughs> this movie i i read the book after having seen the film because i really really liked the movie i find it interesting that cormac mccarthy in his writing plays with grammar 
and punctuation in that he often disregards both in ways that only somebody who has an, like an incredible understanding of, of grammar and punctuation can effectively throw them away know and the still rules tell before a story. Right, know the rules before you break them. And I thought it was interesting that in the same way the Coen brothers felt like they were reminding me with this movie... Yeah, we break some of our own rules. We make a movie like The Big Lebowski where nothing happens. Or we make a movie like The Man Who Wasn't There where the character doesn't really exist. Or, but you know what? We also just want to remind you that we are fucking masters of the grammar of film. And if you don't believe us, here's the goods. <laughs> Clunk. Open that up. And holy shit. It is grammatically perfect as a movie. My criticism that I alluded to earlier, Matt, you know what this is, I think you said, and I'm sure Larry knows, is that I don't like that Llewellyn's death takes place off-screen. I don't mean that it shouldn't, or that I feel like I needed to see it in order for it to work, any of that sort of thing. It's just a big ask to kill your... who seem, The character who seems to be your central protagonist... And for his character to die off screen and for us to really have to fill in a lot of those blanks ourselves is something that flaw is too strong a word, but since I'm picking, I'm looking for a scab to pick off when I'm comparing this to the other top movies on this list, that's the little corner that I can get hold of to start peeling things back on this movie is that the, I feel almost misled when Lou Ellen hangs up the phone. I'm not bothered that he's killed. I don't feel like, oh, Llewellyn should have lived. I'm bothered that he's killed off screen. No, I mean, I get that. I, I certainly have heard criticism of that. Um, and, I mean, it's very unsatisfying. Not only is it unsatisfying, but it's unsatisfying for the purpose of being unsatisfying, which I usually take big issue with, um, except for it just works so well thematically with this movie, which is about... You know, there are no protagonists. Life isn't a story. There's no arc. I mean, there's just the the number of references to, like, coin flipping, jackpots, bingo, um, you know, the sugar getting hit by a car at the end. There's just so much randomness. I think that's that's the point. And so it to make its point that life is random, that, you, you know, we, we try to understand it in terms of glossing a story on top of it, you really can't do that if he has an arc, if there is a sh showdown, because then you just don't have the courage of your convictions or something. Kind mm. of like, yeah, like see, the movie The Fight Club was all about um, getting rid of the trappings of consumer society, but it just didn't have the courage to not have two super handsome movie stars, um, you know, being this consumer society, whereas him dying off screen, I think it, it's just the only way that they really, that this theme could really work. Hmm. For me, I think the thing that pisses people off is actually not the discovery of what happened to Joss Brolin's body. I mean, that's disappointing. It's they feel the lie because of the scene in the hospital where the Josh Brolin character gets finally gets on the phone with Shigur and says, you're not going to have to come looking for me. I'm going to make a personal project out of you. And slams down the phone and you're like, 
fuck yeah, we're going to see an awesome showdown. This is going to be great. This movie's been amazing so far. I cannot wait to see these two. Nope. Fuck <laughs> that. Nope, it's not happening. We were lying. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, I get being, like that narrative really being frustrating, but it's also, like you said, totally on, on point with the book. And just I'd never seen a movie do that to me before and have not lose me. Like I say... I usually don't like it if a movie is sort of punishing me or saying shame on you for watching this or liking this. Anything like that tends to rub me the wrong way. So if I think that the movie is either smarter than I am or rubbing my nose in something, usually I fold my arms and say, fuck you, movie. But I, I actually started watching all the closer, thinking, well, if we're not getting that, what are we getting? <laughs> yeah. What's the payoff going to be? And the payoff being Tommy Lee Jones telling a story to his wife about a couple of dreams is not what we were expecting, but it is fucking powerful. <laughs> yes. Uh, I question whether it's unsatisfying for the purposes of being unsatisfying, right? Like, we've already seen this gripping running gun battle between these two characters. There's, in, there's massive potential for another really dramatic and... Uh, it, there's a lot of potential for what could happen on screen when these characters come back together. The Coen brothers very consciously, obviously, make the choice not to show us that. I have to admit I don't remember if the character is killed off-page in the book or not. Uh, but they made the choice for a reason, and so that gets me thinking on what might that reason be. And I wonder if it's meant to emphasize the impact of the realization that we're actually being told Tommy Lee Jones's story in this movie that we discover what's happened to Llewellyn through his eyes when he shows up at the crime scene right in much the same way that that Margie Marge Gunderson enters as our protagonist literally halfway into Fargo that with this movie it might be a little bit of a hey surprise this is your protagonist thing that they're trying to do with that I, I I'm just having trouble coming up with an answer to why did they do it off screen that I feel certain about? Uh, I, I've given my opinion of why they do it off screen, but that's, that's just like my opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, totally valid one. I want to go back to Shigur. Um, if it was just a Coen Brothers movie, if it wasn't based off of Cormac McCarthy, I would be all down with, this is just a force of evil, some sort of devil figure in the world, and that he is right in all the stuff he's saying. But because it's not, I kind of feel like Shigura wants that to be true, <laughs> right? Shigura wants to believe himself this force of nature, but he's just this evil fuck who likes killing people. But the idea that he comes to you the way a coin comes to you, if you end up in his way... He gets to kill you, and there's probably a reason that you were there, there was a reason you were in his way, and it was right that you died. This is the story that you would have to tell yourself in order to justify all of this killing. <laughs> but do you agree? Like, is this mythic persona that he's, he's selling of himself something that he believes, or that is true? It's an interesting question, Larry. I think Shigur tells that story to the woman for a reason. He has a reason. The movie has a reason for him telling it, but I think he has a reason for telling it as well. Is this a story he tells himself to comfort himself about the decision that he's making to rob these people of their lives? Maybe. Does he 
get off on sort of torturing these people with the grim truth of the uncertainty of our everyday existence, right? Like the frailty of our life, we could each die at the flip of Shigor's coin. And that's just a symbol for the, you know, in his story, for the knife we all, knife edge we all walk along. I don't know the answer to your question. What I do think I know, forgive me if this is something that's widely understood, but I think that the purpose for the strange car accident is to show us that, uh, and to show Shigur, whether he knows it or not, that he is subject to the same laws of randomness and randomness that the rest of the characters in the movie are. He's decidedly not supernatural. Unlike the Randall Tex Cobb character in Raising Arizona, the similar sort of bounty hunter figure who exists outside of the laws of nature, yeah. Anton Shigur is very much within the laws of nature and within the laws of this movie, I think. There's also that weird sort of shocked expression he gets when the Callie McDonald character calls him on his shit. Like, the coin has no say. Just you and me are here. You don't have to kill me. Right? And that's the best clue as far as an answer to your question goes. If Shigur does seem genuinely taken aback by that, which would suggest that he's been buying this lie a little bit, that he's just obeying the, the coin. Yeah. I also, I, I can't quite attribute it to if it's like him playing the shock of the car accident or him genuinely being mystified by the kid, but these two kids that see him after the car accident, one of them, he asks for one of their shirts, and how much for the shirt? And the kid says, Mister, I'll Shit, give you, you my, my shirt. shirt. And he looks at this kid like, what are you? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yes, the entire world. His job, his every breath is a zero-sum game for Anton Chigurh. And what a nightmare his life must be for that reason, right? Everything costs something. And I, I think he's a character that desperately wants there to be a larger purpose or a larger reason, which is why um, Kelly McDonald, when she says, no, you know, it's not the coin that's going to kill me, it's you that's going to kill me, and just facing him to confront the fact that he's an agent, but also that there is no hand of destiny, um, you know, controlling him. Again, like there is, there is choices, not a script that he needs to play out. Um, but like going to that the um, kid who gives him his shirt, you know, we've got an almost exactly parallel scene with Llewellyn crossing the bridge into Mexico and buying the shirt and the beer off of those teenagers so he can pretend to be stumbling in drunk. There is a lot of parallels between Llewellyn and Shigur, a lot of visual parallels throughout. Um, but actually, I think Shigur, in a lot of ways, is more like Tommy Lee Jones in that he desperately wants to hold on to this illusion of purpose or, or greater meaning. Um, and it's, it's kind of the, I don't know if you call it a happy ending, happy insofar as this evil guy is unhappy. Right. He just can't, like, that whole illusion is completely shattered for him. Well, do you think he's using that illusion to shield himself from uh, responsibility for what he's doing? I mean, he's a he's a professional killer and hunter of people. So I think, and this is a lot of going beyond the direct evidence, <clears throat> But um, when Stephen Root asks Woody Harrelson if he knows him, and he talks about knowing him really well, um, they they were both this in Vietnam crazy. together. Or th what I what I imagine is they were in Vietnam, and Shigur 
became he was just really good at killing people right. and maybe maybe giving himself this purpose as a way to cope with it. Or maybe he's just an evil guy, it's hard to say. He wouldn't be the first sure. US Marine who was made more violent by serving in Vietnam. Yeah. Well and he never questions his uh, code when it comes to the Woody Harrelson character. You got in my way, you have to die. And Woody Harrelson, you know, does Hail Mary Pass of have you any idea just how fucking crazy you are does not make a dent in him. But the Kelly McDonald question definitely makes a dent in him. So something has changed there. Uh, I, I think like that's the thing that makes me wonder, like uh, tell me that it's this, this story he's telling himself. If it was just a Coen Brothers movie, I would say, yeah, maybe he is just the force of evil and death in the world. But in this world, in, McCar in McCarthy's vision of it, I think that this is, this is his form of belief or his belief system that is flawed, you know, um, it's not me, you know, something put them in my path. I wanted to talk about the dreams in the end. Um, Before we leave oh, that sorry? topic, that's okay. I just wanted to say that, that uh, if that's what, the, if what they're saying is that uh, someone like Shigur clinging to a belief that there is a, a, a fate steering his decisions in order to absolve his own sense of responsibility for the monstrous acts he commits, that that's sort of how monsters are all created. Whether they're a religious ideologue, whether they're a sexual psychopath, whether they're a warped version of Rambo who's returned from Vietnam and become a hired killer and is now a bounty hunter with, with a whole twisted up sense of, of uh, morality and has come to believe that, that he's not really doing anything other than following the coin when he kills people. That that's the real horror in the movie is that the the monsters in the world are real and they're people who've been twisted by circumstance into doing things that make sense to them, but to us are monsters. You have to tell some kind of story to yourself, I suppose. You're not evil. This is this. You're supposed to. But like, you know, I saw a picture of Kim Jong Un riding a roller coaster the other day that went around <laughs> the internet. I'm sure you, you guys might have seen it. There, he, like, he tells himself something. Yeah. He has a, a narrative about who he is and what his motivations are and why what he's doing isn't evil. I'm sure Kim Jong-un does not think of himself as an evil uh, force in the world. He might think of himself as just a purely selfish force. Maybe he doesn't have any illusions about that, but Shigur tells himself a story, too. That's the most fascinating thing in the movie, and the movie's totally full of fascinating things. I mean, maybe going back to the lady killers, and one of my issues I had with the woman is, it's like the Bob Jones University thing, right? There is no amount of shittiness that people won't visit on other people or the world as long as they think that there's a higher force that's, that's in charge of it. So yeah. like all of the hateful, homophobic stuff of that university, um, you know, they can say, well, we've got God is justifying it. And with Shigur, it's like the coin is justifying it. I'm, I'm not even an agent. Like something is working through me. Right. Um, yeah. So, the, so, I mean, he's definitely a force of evil, but I think I agree. He, the first time I watched it, I thought he was more of a force. And each time he becomes kind of a sad person. I mean, sad 
dangerous killer. And yeah. I'm glad he gets but hit I, by the car, but there's something melancholic about him. I think you're very right. The timing of where this, when the story is set uh, it would make sense that they're both Vietnam vets, Woody Harrelson, well, all three of them. Llewellyn, I think it's stated clearly that he's a non-vet, right? Yeah. yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, well, what I wanted to get to was the dreams at the end. This is something that uh, Cormac McCarthy actually, in, in the few of the things of his that I've read, has come up again and again. Both the idea of a dream of regret and this idea of carrying fire forward. Something going on ahead of you. A safe haven that we are slowly headed to as this sort of like hopeful beat to end in this really, really dire, dire world. And the two dreams that he describes are exactly that, right? He first says, I had a dream that my dad gave me some money, and then something happened. I don't know. I think I lost it. But it's just this intangible thing. He doesn't remember what it is, but it's this regret. He failed in some way. And then he follows it up with, in another one, it was like we were in Western times, and my father rode past us in the horse, and he was carrying this horn with a coal for a fire. That exact image is mentioned in the road as well, mm-hmm. and uh, that that we are going towards something, and there is a comfort, a home base that we're headed to, and that, that somehow that defies death. And as I was just talking to Shigur, is about Shigur's character, is that something we were to take as true, or is that the story that Tommy Lee Jones, the dream? Is that the story that Tommy Lee Jones is telling himself to justify all the horrors? The way Shigur uses the story that fate is the, the one to blame, it's not him, uh, mm-hmm. to comfort him, to help him get by, is this dream that he's clinging on to, his version of that. That It's all leading to something that's going to be good. We're all going to a home place where there will be a fire and food and family and everything as well. Because that does not seem to be like... Uh, that's too hopeful for the movie that this is, right? So I, I'm not saying that is what it means. I just want to bring it up as an idea. I, it's an interesting idea. I think Tommy Lee Jones's character, is I, he doesn't strike me as a particularly religious fellow. Uh, I think he, even the, the most irreligious of us, there, it's a very human notion to want there to be... Uh, something after death, right? And if it's his father who's carrying the coal the in horn, the horn, right? Yeah. The notion of being able to see your dad or see your best friend or whatever after everything is gone is an innately human desire that you can't rid yourself of even if you are a stout atheist, right? So, and I got the read from it that he's aware of that as he's telling the story. Which is why he hesitated to even say it out loud. Exactly. But he... But he's still going through it, because whether you believe that stuff or not, those feelings are still just an inherent part of becoming old, especially when you're facing death the way he was. He realizes how close he came to the worst kind of nightmare person, (laughs) right? He could have just as easily been killed. It it sounds, does describe as very close to the salve that is religion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I had a... Slightly different, but I think my, my opinion is maybe a little bit more idiosyncratic. Um, but there are, are times in the movie, like it's, it's really intense. Almost all the scenes are really intense, except when you get away from the story and you go into diners or the conversation with his wife, who is um, significantly not retiring, um, sort of a more um, vibrant person. And to me, it seems like 
you know, Sugar and Tommy Lee Jones run into the same problem because they're desperately trying to put a meaning on life as opposed to the scenes where people are just living life, at which point, you know, like, so-and-so is driving by in a truck with a tarp undone, like, just, just the mundane life, but it's not, it's not such a big deal. There are ways to enjoy it. It's just when you start focusing on what does it all mean that you start becoming crazy or depressed or whatever. Yes, Paxton, you with your hand up. I just want to try and blow your mind for a second. They are flip sides of a coin. Okay. Tommy Lee Jones is running from death. He fears death. The stories he's telling himself or the dreams he's having are about trying to evade death, trying to make it to that safe place. Shigur is dealing death. He's on the other side of that death coin, right? And the stories he tells himself are about being a death dealer and what his part in, what part he's playing in that, right? I, the thing I was going to say earlier about him is I get from what you said about him being a non-vet, I like the notion that he is a man who became a killer in Vietnam, told himself the true story that he was following orders. He was following orders. But he wasn't just following orders. He was also, he himself, personally becoming a killer. Now he's home from Nam. There are no orders other than the job he takes. But the coin, right, replaces those orders. He's just following these orders coming down from fate, right? Somebody else other than his trigger finger is making the decision. Anyway, that doesn't blow any that, minds, but that's my take on it, that those two characters are flip sides of the death coin. Well, my only, my only quibble is I don't think that puts them on flip sides. I think even as being the death dealer, it's his way of trying to avoid the scariness of death, right? This mm -hmm. is the, the thing about trying to give himself purpose or trying to make himself an agent of death as a way to kind of avoid, you know, you never meant anything. Yeah. And right? if he's the one doing it, in some way, doesn't that make him, by implication, above it? Mm -hmm. if, yeah, right, is which that is part of it. I think he's terrified by what when Kelly McDonald tells him that he doesn't have to flip the coin. Yeah. Well, and it's not, like, it's uh, it's a something that is reported by survivors of combat is a feeling of indestructibility, right? Uh, when you've lived through something that, by all accounts, you probably oughtn't to have lived through, <laughs> you shouldn't have, air quotes, survive, uh, there might be a certain amount of, of uh, needing to feel above death, right? Missing that feeling that he had flying in a helicopter, shooting down at people, feeling halfway indestructible. Now he's riding around Texas, feeling halfway indestructible, killing cops with a cattle bolt. But he somehow couldn't do it if it was just him doing it. I just have one last little thing. Please. Uh, and this is a callback to our original episode in Blood Simple. Um, when I was talking about how, I mean, I would even say for the man who wasn't there, how I have a hard time with movies where I can't latch on to characters. This is a really good... Good. I mean, I think all of the main characters in this are really good examples of unlikable characters, but it's really easy to latch on to them. And I, it's somewhere, some combination of the performance and the writing and the directing. I don't know what it is, but like we're on side with Llewellyn. Yeah, I don't think he's even unlikable. I think he's just eminently human. Like he makes a decision that on a bad day I can imagine myself making the really stupid decision to keep that bag of money. 
but he also makes the decision to go back and give a dying man some water. And that is the decision that fucks him. But I think, but that's about him being likable. I'm talking about being able to latch on to him because I think the viewers latched on to him long before he goes back for the water. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, that that could just be a function of him being a point of view character, right? Often when when he's your point of view character until they do something unlikable, you tend to, as a viewer, just naturally side with the person you're watching unless you have a reason not to. Yeah. It won Best Picture, and I have no problem with <laughs> that. One Best Picture for a reason. Uh, yes. It's like I have no respect for the Oscars. I'm thrilled to say that the Oscars came and went this year without me knowing it. When people said it was over, I actually had to ask them who won. Like, I just didn't give a fuck. <laughs> um, but in this case, there was not a better movie that came out in that calendar year. I, I guarantee it. <laughs> I would not be surprised if the Coen brothers never make a better crime thriller. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, is this the least funny movie they've ever made? Maybe, but it's not not funny. I still think, in spite of its darkness, it does make me smile a few times. But well, banter with his wife. Yeah. Conversation every time. Yeah. Gets me. But like this movie and Blood Simple, I think, are duking it out for least funny Coen Brothers movie. I, I would say Intolerable Cruelty as a collaborates. <laughs> Ouch. Mm. Right in the feelings. Well, I can't agree with that, but (laughs) touche. I didn't find this rank as hard as the last rank to do. The top two were tricky for me, but the rest, I think, fell into place pretty easily. Did you guys find it trickier than that? Or? No, I found this ranking to be easier than I expected when I first set out to rewatch the movies. Right. What about you, Matt? Um, my four and five could go either way, but other than that, it just... It just blossomed in front of me like a flower. It was very clear what went where. Well, All right. that's, that's really pretty. Well, let's not fuck about then. Paxton is going to go first. Paxton, what was your least favorite of these six Coen Brothers pictures and why? I'm tearing open the sealed list. Ooh. My least favorite of these six Coen Brothers movies was Intolerable Cruelty. This is me not being shocked. <laughs> Matt, do you need to not be shocked for a moment? Hold on, i got to pick my jaw up off the floor here. <laughs> okay. I think we discussed it. Uh, the movie is not it it doesn't fail it gets a passing grade that's what i'll say and all i need to say about intolerable cruelty in the interest of moving things along the man who wasn't there comes in at number five for me and so already i think our lists diverge i find it to be probably the most boring coen brothers film that there is and that is not something that i like saying on the record. <laughs> I uh, I reserve the right to change that opinion someday if I become more enlightened about this movie. If there's someone out there listening to this 
who thinks I'm really stupid for what I've said and wants to enlighten me. There's at least one. Email Larry Parsons (laughs) at rankandreview at gmail.com and bitch to him about it. Yeah, it'll be my problem. That's right. Uh, Number four, I come in with the Lady Killers, which I did not expect when I sat down to watch these movies. I expected Lady Killers to be either five or six. I was pleasantly surprised when I revisited that movie. It is not great, but it was... I found it to be a lot of fun. It was laugh-out-loud fun in a couple of places. It's no Big Lebowski, but... few things out. It's not at the bottom of my list. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou at number three? I don't think that's a big surprise. I would not be surprised if the three of us all line up on that, actually. Uh, Even though Once Upon a Time I think I might have ranked it somewhere higher than number three. I think that might be true for you too, Matt, that maybe ten years ago this same list, well, ten years ago, would No Country for Old Men have even been made yet. Yep. Speaking of, yep. was that 2007 now? Yep. Jesus. <laughs> <sighs> it feels to be old, and We're you realized old. you just became Tommy Lee Jones. Well, yeah. <laughs> I just saw my dad ride past me holding a coal and a horn under <laughs> yeah. a blanket. Okay, so speaking of no co for Obro, that's my number two. Because I just could not bring myself to rank The Big Lebowski as anything but number one in my list of these six movies for the Cobras. There it was. If I'm totally honest, like, The Big Lebowski is probably in my you-can-only-take-three-movies-to-a-desert-island-for-the-rest-of-your-life list. It might even be my you-can-only-take-one-movie <laughs> to a desert <laughs> island for the rest of your life movie. That's a ridiculous question none of us will ever have to face. But Thank that's God. How, that's how much I love the movie. Even if No Country for Old Men is a technically better-made film, there are so few films that I enjoy and have and that have brought me more joy than The Pig Lebowski that I just had to put her there in number one. It just fits right in there, right in its time and place. Just goes red. <laughs> I even had my favorite car was named after Maude Lebowski. I had a red Acura Integra that was named Maude. Aww. But Aww. she, unfortunately, she had to get put down. <laughs> had, to, had to sell it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Matthew, you're up, brother. Uh, his Some list is ready. Uh, I put Big Lebowski in last place. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to me? What are you doing to me? <laughs> no, I think it will surprise nobody to learn that I put intolerable cruelty snugly nestled in sixth place uh, to be forgotten in the oubliesque history. What is that in Labyrinth? Where the oubliette. Oubliette. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm glad uh, that you were joking, because this would have been the first time a friendship had ended <laughs> on Rank and Review. <laughs> well, it's been a great friendship, Matthew, but uh, that is just incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, uh, irreconcilable differences. <laughs> exactly. Did you guys sign the um, messy prenup? No? No, we did Shit. not. And I think you're right. I think it's Oubliette. Oubliette, I believe. All right, number five, brother. So four and five... Um, I mean, they're both kind of in the same place for me. I put uh, Lady Killers at five because I think Man Who Wasn't There is like a better made film. Um, I mean, the criteria being if I had to teach one of them, 
in film school, there's more that you could get from the man who wasn't there. But honestly, um, I kind of agree with what Paxton said. I, I would way rather watch Lady Killers. I just don't think it was as good. Um, but anyway, the, these two could flip easily. I think The Man Who Wasn't There is a clearly better photographed film. I'll definitely go with you there. But say you're teaching a class on film remakes, you got to go Lady Killers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. I just, I'm hard time believing that I would put Lady Killers on any syllabus <laughs> when teaching film school. Um, next place, somewhat controversially, but I think you'll understand, I put Big Lebowski. Um, it just it just doesn't sparkle with me. I've got no complaints about it. Uh, it just it just doesn't get my pee-pee hard. It's because you've got no heart. Yeah, that could be it. That could be it. I'm a very tin man in that way. Um, oh, brother, like I said, kind of diminishing returns because I've seen it a bunch of times, but like every time there's that Lotus Eater song or every time there's the Siren song, it just brings me back. I, I just think on the strength of the soundtrack alone and just the whole experience of it, um, it really does get me in the heart. Um, I think it's kind of greater than the sum of its parts in that way. And then... Obviously, the most perfect movie ever made is, has to be number one for me. Um, it's so weird to me that in the in the Cohen slump that there is this this sparkling diamond of the perfect film. Well, I was correct. We none of us matched in our lists. So. I want to jump in for one moment, okay, if I can, before you start. Otherwise, I'll forget and say that Matt twice mentioned twice mentioned the amazing soundtrack in uh, Oh Brother, you know, Brother Where Art Thou. I wanted to also point out that the Big Lebowski has a delicious soundtrack, jaw-dropping soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, uh, respect to your list, even though it's wrong. Uh, I feel you. It's all good. I'm not too personally hurt that you put over other work that the Big Lebowski. Well, now we can hear the oh. list in its correct order, so everybody can be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what were you going to say, Matt? Oh, just uh, another callback to last time. I said that uh, two of my five Desert Island movies were Coen Brothers, and those were and continue to be O Brother and No Country. Yeah. Um, I just think they're great. Yeah. Well, they are. I, I mean, this isn't going to be a surprise. You guys can just predict my list, but I did put the Lady Killers at the bottom. <clears throat> Maybe it's unfair that I judge them more harshly for the Lady Killers, but like I said, they didn't have any other baggage, baggage to bring, like... Intolerable Cruelty, there was a package already in place, and there's other writers involved, other producers involved. There was stuff that they were probably had to live with, or, you know, decisions were made before they got there. As a full-sale, front-to-back Coen Brothers movie, this is the most disappointing one to me. Is it a bad movie? Fuck no. It's a really funny, enjoyable movie, and uh, I, I do appreciate the warmth in the Irma P. Hall character. I understand that we would agree on almost nothing. If I met that person, but I would still on some level be charmed by the warmth of this person. Mm. Um, in fifth position, comfortably intolerable cruelty. Again, for all of the bitching we did about it, I stand by my statement as one of the biggest crimes is too little Jeffrey Rush. They need to put Jeffrey Rush in one of their movies. I think he's fucking hilarious in that movie. Um, it's an is-what-it-is throwback wacky rom-com and right there that's not in my wheelhouse but as brought to you by the coen brothers it's entertaining enough but in their sort of <laughs> scheme of movies it's it's beyond trivial almost 
fourth place is the difficult the man who wasn't there i did find it beautiful and i have to say although i can't really come up with a great argument to say that it's not a boring movie i understand taking it large it moves at a snail's pace but it's just weird how each individual scene i kind of like as it's happening but at the end i just feel like it's been a really long walk but i i, I didn't find it as taxing as it sounds like you guys did <clears throat> I want it maybe to be more than it is, and maybe I suspect that there's something that I'm missing, but I've seen it enough times that uh, uh, it only made it to fourth place. Top three was tricky, but in third place, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Love it. I love that its primary goal seems to be putting and keeping a smile on your face. And like, if nothing else, I think they're pretty successful there. <clears throat> and I like that it's a journey, sort of episodic kind of you know movie so if you're not big on babyface nelson maybe the sirens will work for you and if the sirens don't work for you maybe john goodman will work for you there's <laughs> always something really sweet around the corner i also think we didn't mention the uh incredibly it's charles derning and i can't remember the name of the other actor these two hayseed politicians that we end up <laughs> following peripherally and it doesn't seem obvious what they have to do with the plot until eventually we all end up in a concert together with the soggy bottom boys happy something or other they have some <laughs> happy they have some really hilarious dialogue but also some of the darkest dialogue in like cohen lord like some he says some terrible things to his bad nephew it's just like wow um the the movie is is just incredibly charming and uh yeah it, it's strange to me that this is, quote, one of the biggest hits of the Coen Brothers, not because I don't love it, just because of, even by Coen standards, it's a really out there piece. And I'm, I'm thrilled that it was so embraced. I'm just sort of surprised that it was so embraced. Number two is No Country for Old Men. And, like, one and two is brutal. And in the end, I had to make it personal. And I, I get a great meal out of No Country for Old Men. I've watched it many times before. I will watch it many times again. But I don't think a movie exists that has given me as much pleasure as The Big Lebowski. I revisit it every year. Second, maybe only to Jaws, which I used to watch, like, the last hour of Jaws every day at lunch. While I was eating my lunch. Like, I watched the fucking shit out of this movie, and I never get tired of it. So, you know, maybe, maybe this is personal bias. You know what? Definitely this is personal bias, but... I had to put Lebowski at number one, and I don't think either of you guys are surprised by that. <laughs> nope. The top halves of our list match. I'm with you there. I, I don't know if any movie from my adulthood has brought me more joy than this movie. I yeah. think if I count some of my childhood movies, like maybe Star Wars, has right. over the past 40 years brought me more joy, if you can weigh it that way. I don't know. But, yeah, Lebowski's definitely up there. I will grant you this on No Country for Old Men. Matt, is that if I were to sit down and watch one of these six movies again by myself, it would be that one. Right. Uh, I've seen Lebowski so many times that at this point it's become a social event. Like, I don't think I would sit through that movie again by myself, maybe ever. <laughs> like, we watch it once a year in a group anyway, kind of thing. No Country for Old Men, too, is like, if I were to show one of these movies to someone who had never seen a Coen Brothers movie before, it would be that or a brother. It wouldn't be Lebowski. Right. Thank you, gentlemen. We have another Coen Brothers episode to do in our future. That was a lot of fun, and hey, there was less fisticuffs over uh, <laughs> racial stereotypes. In no scrapping. 
I like that we disagreed on the lists, all three of us, but we didn't fight, really. <laughs> you were saying when you were talking about the ranking of Coen Brothers Online, how the, the uniform thing is that none of them are uniform, and I think we've just reinforced that <laughs> for you. Next time you watch No Country for Old Men, though, or rather, Old Brother Where Art Thou, watch it with the thought in mind that they're all wearing blackface. <laughs> Because I think that's, yeah. maybe, that's maybe the script that deep down inside they wanted to write. <laughs> Three black men escaping a chain gang in this deep set. Or, again, the script they should have written. <laughs> <laughs> in an alternate universe where it wasn't such a deeply and terribly painful and damaging thing for so many people, where you could actually play with that without genuinely hurting so many people, then yes, that would be the script to write. <laughs> Well, I have a kind of a more banal take on the all black people on the chain gang, which is they began with that recording of the high sheriff and Lazarus. Oh, Lazarus. And that was all, all uh, black voices. So they're like, yeah, we'll just put all black people on the chain gang. And if, if I had to guess, the thought never occurred to them of the optics of having the only three people escaping being the three white people. Mm. See, I'd be, su- I'd be surprised simply because the camera seems to almost, uh, well, I don't know, I, I'll have to look at it again, I guess. The, the camera seems to relish the moment where they pop out of the corn and they're the first white-skinned people we've seen so far in the movie who weren't, like, slave-driving, chain-gang, overseer cops, right? Are these, they're, I don't know, I find it difficult to imagine that the uh, filmmakers as practiced as them would put those images on the screen without thinking about the notion that, like, there is no one else here on set today that's white other than our three main actors. Well, Yeah, and I don't think it hurts them. I, I just don't get that from their corpus. In fact, the reason why I think Cedric the Entertainer and Marlon Wayans are in those two middle movies is somewhere along the line, somebody said to them, uh, have you ever noticed you don't really seem to have black people in your movies? And they're like, ah, oh, Right. Well, oh, see, I think it's because they love playing with, with stereotypes, whether it's the bitchy wife stereotype or whether it's the cowed, cucked husband stereotype or whether it's the brash, yeah. black, uh, ass-nailer stereotype well, or whether it's the Capra magic uh, black demigod character. They are constantly playing with stereotypes no matter what genre they're working in. Well, here's my, it's not really a take, because I don't know, I'd, I'd have to like watch it with that in mind to see if I agreed or disagreed with your, your conceit here. But I just recently watched this movie, Room 237, about, you know, obsessive Kubrick fans talking about Stanley Kubrick, where everything can mean everything and nothing can mean anything. And I think when it's a filmmaker that we put on this high level, we, we will sometimes put weight into things that we like. The reason that they use that German typewriter is because this this scene is really about the Holocaust and the way the Germans were counting the numbers and blah, 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 blah. Or that was the uh, typewriter of the four that the props department brought that they thought looked the best on camera. Well, I think you can really easily uh, assert more meaning into things because... Well, this is made by a fucking genius. Well, but, but the <laughs> right? fact remains that a casting, either a casting director cast only black singers in the chain gang, or extras, or whatever, or the editor cut out every shot with a white chain gang member in it. 
and either way a decision was made and that decision was by definition not made unknowingly right like the as they're editing the movie they are looking at every shot and they are aware there are no white people in the chain gang. or it could be that this song was sung by a bunch of black guys on a chain gang so we need a bunch of black guys on a chain gang in which case it was still a decision to cast only black people in the chain gang it was just more out of authenticity than saying anything but then they're still then making a move like all I'm arguing is that they're fully cognizant of the fact that their three main characters are the only people in this chain gang who aren't black right and if that's What's the he, answer then it's still like that supports my point if anything that that they were aware that it's an all-black chain gang they show us I, mean, I don't know it's don't not know. and it's not even a big deal it's just an interesting thing for me that I for some reason until this viewing it hadn't even occurred to me that like why are there no other white guys on that chain gang besides these three let me know if you know let us know well that was a <laughs> deep dive into some cobros is there anything you guys want to say before I turn this mic off uh, can we? Oh, oh. Yeah, it's still going. Can we try and do the next one in purpose, mate? In in person, not in purpose. <laughs> well, it depends. I It'll... sure hope that the timing works out. That someday we're all in the same room again and can record one of these things for real life. Mano yeah. a mano a mano. Thank you so much for listening to that epic episode of Rankin Review on the Brothers Cohen. Extra special thank you to Matthew Risling for doing the podcast under a state of quarantine from Shanghai. And extra thanks to Paxton Francis for putting up with hosting the whole epic event in his home. Big thanks, you guys, for coming back for the Cohen Brothers. I'm guessing there could be some feedback to be found when it comes to the Cohen Brothers. And if you'd like to send me some, you can do that at rankingview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I am, as always, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. So you can send your complaints or compliments to me. But if you have a message for Paxton or Matthew, I will see to it that they get it. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. I really appreciate it. And if you could go ahead and tell that other cinema freak in your life about the show, you'd be doing me a real solid.